All right, before we get started in earnest, I want to reiterate what I said at the end of the last episode, which is that uh, this movie, The Brave Little Toaster, that we're talking about today, uh, deals with some more mature themes and some darker themes. We are going to have to talk about those things during this episode, so it's not going to be quite as family-friendly as usual. So keep that in mind, and also this episode, like the movie, uh, has a content warning for discussions of suicide and depression, so I just want to let everybody know that going in so, you know, you can make a decision about whether or not to listen to this podcast and who to listen to it with. Thank you, and without further ado, let's start the show. This is weird. It's much worse than I feared. I'll close my eyes and make it disappear. This is strange. It ain't home on the range. You just tell St. Pete that you got cold feet. There goes the sun. Here comes the night. Somebody turn on the light. Somebody tell me that fate has been kind. You can't go out. You are out of your mind. It's like a podcast. <laughs> it's a podcasty show. It's like a podcast. It's a podcasty show. <laughs> I feel like that sets the tone pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mom, I am excited to talk about this movie. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't tell. <laughs> Everybody and welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon, plus some extras, yeah. and talking about how they were made, what they mean, and why we love them, or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined, as always, by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello, Isaac. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing very, very well. Mm -hmm. uh, things could be worse, you know. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't. I lied. <laughs> uh, it's a line for the movie, folks. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm looking forward to our first five-hour episode. <laughs> I'm not. Five hours, really? <laughs> and editing our first five-hour episode, we do want to give a special shout-out to our editor, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Thanks for all the work that you do. You know, I think Houdini edited a podcast once, and if I remember right, he was out of the hospital in no time. <laughs> this week on the program, we are technically in our Bronze Era miniseries, but this week we have a bonus episode, and we are stepping out of the animated canon. With our bonus episodes, I have picked one movie. It's this, The Brave Little Toaster. And you have picked one movie, TBD. Yep. That are both Disney animated films, but they are not part of the canon. They were not released by Disney Animation Studios or whatever the official name for it is, but they were not the main branch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In this case, we're talking about a Hyperion picture that was distributed through the Disney Channel. Correct. And that movie is, of course, 1987's The Brave Little Toaster, directed by the genius Jerry Rees. Well, I know what you think about this movie. Yes. Why don't you uh, go ahead? You could go first. Uh, and the last time you will be allowed to talk on this episode. No. Right. <laughs> uh, but I do want to know, Mom, what does this here movie, this picture, this b -b -b bonus episode mean to you? This is not a movie I've seen a ton of times. We did not have the Disney Channel when I was growing up, as I believe I've mentioned before. I think the first time I saw this movie, I was at my cousin's house. 
and we were watching it. You know, it was just keep the kids occupied, go put on a cartoon or something. So I watched it there. Didn't really connect with it. Mm-hmm. It was like, this is weird. <laughs> it's much worse than I feared. Ah, good catch on the setup. I knew you would catch it. <laughs> I don't remember feeling like I understood it. And I'm pretty sure I saw it. I don't remember if we ever had any sort of like uh, recorded off TV VHS when I was growing up after that. But I know we had the one like that when you were a kid mm-hmm. that my aunt recorded off the Disney Channel for us in 97. There you go. So we had it almost your whole life. Right. <laughs> so it's never been a favorite of mine. It's one of those. It's like, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> what does this movie mean to you now that you're an ad- I mean, have you watched it as an adult before this podcast? I'm pretty sure we would have watched it with you guys with the VHS ages ago. But again, it's just not one that really resonates very strongly with me. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's time for you to gush. <laughs> what does this movie mean to me? OK, so I obviously we had this tape uh, when I was a kid and we watched it. I'm sure we watched it a few times. Yeah. You guys didn't watch those VHSs as often because, of course, there were, you know, sometimes we'd have to like cue it up. Because you'd have to fast forward through previous Mm -hmm. movie or whatever, you know. And they were very good quality. And this movie, like you, I didn't really connect to it as a kid. I know I watched it enough to remember having watched it. But uh, my brother and I were much more fond of the two sequels. Because this is a dark, slow, very mature kind of movie. Uh, And the two sequels are goofy direct-to-video kids adventures that are more... In the vein of, you know, what you would enjoy as a kid. Right. And I know we would have like rented those at Blockbuster or something when you guys were kids. We definitely rented those a lot. Yeah. And uh, this movie, it didn't really connect with me uh, until high school Mm -hmm. when I was having a conversation with uh, my brother for some reason. And we were talking about like you never talk. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, in high school, we talked a lot less in high school. These these were definitely the dark times of our relationship. The, when you're both teenagers, you just kind of got to get through it, I guess. But yeah. for some reason, we were talking about like that Brave Little Toaster movie. Was that kind of dark? Like remembering scenes and not really having put them into context before. Right. But we had a conversation about it. I watched it then. It was the first time I actually like got it. And I was like, wow, this is a really incredible movie. And I started like learning a lot about it, reading a lot about it. I've watched it a lot since then. For a long time, this was my go to answer for my favorite movie in like high school (laughs) and college, probably until I saw until the end of the world last year. Maybe I might (laughs) have this. This was kind of my go to answer. It's still definitely my favorite Disney movie of any capacity. I love it. This is a movie I've watched multiple times in the same day, multiple times. Mm -hmm. I I could just watch this movie forever. And it really, my favorite type of movie are movies that are quite sad and quite dark as (laughs) as this one is, but then give you like a reason to be hopeful Mm -hmm. in that. And that is what like, those are the movies that comfort me. Those are my kind of feel good movies. Some people's (laughs) feel good movies are like just happy throughout and that's all well and good. But for me, I want a movie that's like the world sucks. Everything (laughs) is awful. Being alive is such an impossible challenge, but here's, here's the bit of hope you can take with you because that, I don't know, that just speaks a lot more to me, I guess. 
And this is this is a movie I watch when I'm in that kind of a mood, when I need to be reminded of like what it's all about. <laughs> truly, truly, that is that is how I feel about this. I have a very profound emotional uh, connection to this movie, which I also think is just incredibly well made and well done. And like in the Fox of the Hound episode, I talked about how after watching it, I felt drained. Right. This was the opposite. Like after we watched it and I had worked an 11 hour day at work, I come home. We immediately watch this movie. I've not eaten dinner yet. I'm starving throughout. Afterwards, I was like energized. I was like, I want to stay up all night. (laughs) The next morning I woke up thinking about like, man. Brave Little Toaster is still so good. I can't believe it. It just uh, invigorates me. This is definitely still one of my favorite films. I would no longer put it in the number one spot, probably not even the number two spot, but it's it's up in the top ten for sure. I love it. Shall I tell you one of the things that bugs me the most about the movie? It's so pointless for them to go on this journey. <laughs> I think that's crucial. I think that's crucial. If they just waited at the cottage, he would have come and picked them up. I think that's really important to this movie. I think that's part of the point. But yes, I know. But it bugs me. That sort of storytelling bothers me. Totally fair. So uh, without further ado, shall I talk to you a bit about how this movie was made? As I said, what people talk about this movie now. Most people don't remember it or don't remember it that well. They're like, oh, yeah, I think I saw that on TV when I was a kid or something. Right. If they see it when they're older, mostly what they talk about is like, wow, this movie's so dark. Like they talk about the scary clown or whatever. And a lot of the people who are like the Brave Little Toaster is underappreciated. They just talk about how dark it is. I think this movie, obviously, it is very dark. It's surprisingly dark for a Disney film. Yeah. But it like. It has characters, it has themes, it has, like, I feel like this movie is very underappreciated in that regard, as not just being like, wow, it's kind of weird that this movie exists, but like, this is a really special film. And that's kind of the reason I want to do bonus episodes, because I was like, if we're talking about Disney, I want to use whatever platform we have (laughs) to evangelize about the Brave Little Toaster being a great movie that I think everyone should see. Mm -hmm. So the Brave Little Toaster starts as a novella written by Thomas M. Deesh. I looked it up and I'm assured it's Deesh. It sure doesn't look like it. Uh, And Thomas M. Deesh is a very interesting writer. He's mostly a science fiction uh, writer. He's one Hugo Award and had a bunch of Hugo and Nebula Award nominations and a whole bunch of other awards. He wrote many uh, very, very interesting books. Uh, He's a really good writer. And this is, I think, his only or at least one of his only forays into children's fiction. It was first published as a novella in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in 1980. And it was an incredibly popular story by the standards of science fiction and fantasy stories. Um, It was nominated for both a Hugo and a Nebula, and it won several other awards that aren't as prestigious. And Deesh really wanted to get it published as a book, but was unable to do so. Uh, Publishers didn't want to take it. They thought talking appliances were too weird. (laughs) Eventually, after the movie comes out, I think in part because of the movie, he was able to uh, publish it where it was published as a bedtime story for small appliances. 
<laughs> and there's a lot of this kind of language throughout the book, which I have read um, because of the movie. Mm-hmm. And throughout, it's it's addressed to small appliances and so on. And it talks about like small appliances should not play with electricities unless, uh, you know, if you're in any doubt about the voltage of the current where you are living, ask a major appliance like all this. So it's very cute in this way. Disha's work often deals with depression and suicide which are things that he struggled with for his entire life, in large part because he was a gay man uh, in a time when it was very, when it was even harder to to be so. And so obviously the Brave Little Toaster, like many of his books, deals with these themes. That's how those themes make it into the movie. Mm -hmm. And he would unfortunately end up taking his own life. So you can you can see how and, and the book is in my opinion much more depressing. It is much more of a downer ending. Yeah. And I think I do prefer the movie for several reasons. And one of the big ones is that. Like they're they're playing with the depressed themes, but they are not the makers of this film are not necessarily actually depressed like Dish and, and so they can end it with a little more hope. Not, of course, that I want to, uh, you know, blame him for that in any way. Yeah. But uh, a lot of things that are in the book do make it into the movie in some form. Jerry Reese, the aforementioned director and writer of this movie, he likes to say in interviews that uh, four lines from the book made it into the movie. That's that's his joke. <laughs> but it, it does share quite a few similarities. But they, you know, unlike Black Cauldron, they knew how to uh, how to adapt it well how to take interesting ideas and set pieces and stuff and move them around. Like the junkyard scene is halfway through the book. Of course, it's at the end of the movie. Right. So the guy who was really interested in this book first was John Lasseter, Mm -hmm. who, of course, we're going to talk about more later. John Lasseter is one of the foundational people of Pixar. He eventually becomes the head of Disney Animation and... I do feel a responsibility to mention whenever we bring him up, he is a creep. He (laughs) treated the women he worked with very badly. This is why he's eventually ousted from Disney. Yep. That was one that was a fairly early, you know, when the Me Too movement was getting started, um, so to speak. And we were outing all of these, you know, creeps and predators in Hollywood. He was fairly early on in that. And that one, that was one of the ones that really affected me because of his involvement with this movie specifically. That was when we all had to start reckoning with, oh, everything we love was made by horrible people. This yep. this was one that really got me. Yep. But he uh, was very interested in the story. He was especially interested in making it a, uh, a CGI movie because he really obviously wanted to do CGI animation. That's why he eventually goes to Pixar. Right. And when the people who formed Pixar were looking for the movies to do for CGI animation. They were like, well, they can't be human Mm -hmm. because CGI cannot do humans very well. It can't do animals very well because the fur is too difficult. So they really were like inanimate objects are the best thing (laughs) we can render. Obviously they would do toy story for that reason. Right. So brave little toaster makes, makes sense. And obviously a, a lot of people talk about this and it's obvious when you watch the movie, they took a lot from <laughs> Brave Little Toaster for Toy Story, like a like a <laughs> shocking amount. And I have opinions about that. I think that, you know, the, the Toy Story movies get a lot of credit for like, oh, they're so dark and mature and they're about death. And this is like 
those movies were still beholden, even the first one, to like Katzenberg and Eisner, you know, making notes on them. And they still had to work in the studio system. This is that with no studio notes. Right. And if you like the Toy Story movies better, that's fine. I understand. Maybe you don't want the like almost unpleasant tone of, in fact, frequently outright unpleasant tone of this movie, <laughs> but I admire it more for that, for being a little more avant-garde. But Toy Story is a lot more enjoyable for everyone yes. and has better singable songs. But I disagree. No, these songs in the to- Brave Little Toaster are not very singable. You can't catch the words. They don't really forward the story enough, I don't think. I didn't realize what a uh, contentious episode this was going to be. I have to make it contentious. Otherwise, it's just going to be you talking the whole time. I have to have something to say. You don't have to make it contentious. You could just say, oh, you're so right. (laughs) (laughs) But So John Lasseter uh, asked Tom Wilhite, who was the head of motion picture and television production at Disney. This is during the Ron Miller era, the little bit where he specifically when he was president before the weird year where he's CEO for like a second. (laughs) And so he asks Tom Wilhite, who was this, you know, executive who was more interested in doing more challenging and different and interesting things. Uh, He had been in charge of such films as Splash and Tron. His involvement with Tron is very important. Mm -hmm. And uh, he likes the book, too. So he acquires it. Lasseter puts together this 30 second reel uh, with some other animators, I believe, that's 2D animation on 3D backgrounds. He pitches it to Miller and another executive named Ed Hansen. And uh, Ron Miller asked how much the movie would cost. And Lasseter replied, which was very impressive for a CGI film, that it would cost no more than a traditionally animated film. (laughs) But Miller rejected that, saying that the only reason to use computers would be if it was faster or cheaper, Mm -hmm. which, I, you know, kind of makes sense, especially now that we live in the era of CGI animation and it's kind of lifeless and boring. And I I understand that from the artist's perspective. So Lasseter leaves the meeting. A few minutes later, he receives a phone call from the aforementioned Ed Hansen asking him to come to Hansen's office where he is fired. So for <laughs> pitching the Brave Little Toaster, John Lasseter is fired. So this is weirdly an incredibly important film in Disney history because right. it sets Lasseter on the path to eventually come back and take everything over. It's a weird thing. Like, why would pitching an, a movie get you fired? Because people did that all the time. Too weird, too upsetting, and nobody liked the CGI. Uh, basically, until Toy Story was like <laughs> almost done. Nobody believed that it actually could be done. Right. So that happens. Meanwhile, Will Height decides to go set up his own independent movie studio uh, with the help of another guy, Willard Carroll, who had been the head of Disney's story department. Uh, he had been a director and screenwriter and uh, became a producer. And they decided to go start their own studio called Hyperion Pictures. This was an independent production company. Mm-hmm. And when they left Disney they decided there was one project they wanted to take with them to Hyperion. They were going to do all original stuff except for the Brave Little Toaster, which Disney was pretty much happy to get rid of because <laughs> uh, they had zero interest in making this weird... You can have it. ...dark thing, exactly. Um, and the deal that they worked out with them and some other production companies was Disney would actually did put up some money to make the film. In exchange, they would be allowed to distribute it on television specifically. Right. But 
Disney had no input in the making of this thing. And that's very important. Yeah. I feel like our podcast talks a lot about, you know, kind of art versus commerce, uh, Roy versus Walt, you know, card walker versus Tim Burton, <laughs> you know, all, all these things. This is like the pure art yeah. kind of version of this movie because Hyperion did not have a big budget for it. The budget for this movie ends up being around like $5 million. And they really wanted to get like filmmakers who were hungry and who had something to prove. And Thomas Wilhite remembered uh, a guy he had worked with on Tron. In fact, a guy who had directed all of the animation on Tron, all of the CGI, all the visual effects, a guy who had recently left Disney with Brad Bird to try and work on a project that never got off the ground. That is, of course, the director and main writer and really, you know, kind of the auteur of this film, not that he deserves all the credit, but the man with the vision, which was Jerry Rees. And so he offers it to Jerry and he's very upfront about like, listen, you have no money, but you guys will have complete creative control. <laughs> like you and anyone else you get on this, you'll have to work long hours, frankly, you know, we can't afford to make a very good movie. So like there was a lot of kind of working more than was reported and a lot of like personal sacrifices made on this film <laughs> so that they could make a good movie because they did not have enough money to make a good movie. But, you know, in exchange for all this extra hard work, you truly get to make whatever you want, which if you've listened to our previous episodes, you understand why that appealed to a lot of Disney animators at the time. Right. Lasseter was not involved in this movie beyond pitching the initial idea. But again, clearly he saw it because his pitch for Toy Story would be let's rip it off and make it something that could actually succeed in the mainstream. <laughs> so Reese, you know, kind of assembles his team. And again, they had no money and they had a super short time to work on this. So they were doing several things at the same time. Like they were writing at the same time they were storyboarding, at the same time they were casting voice roles. They literally cast voice roles before the script was finished. Yeah. Uh, it was a very small, incredibly passionate team. And I think that helps the energy of the movie. Like these, again, these people really had something to prove. There was none of the nine old men uh, type laziness we see in the Bronze Era where, you know, they're just kind of coasting on the success they've always had and like, oh, we know how to make a good movie. These are... You know, they are really putting their heart and soul into this thing. Yep. Uh, another person who's very, very important to this movie, uh, the co-screenwriter Joe Ranft, and kind of seems like he was Reese's right-hand man slash, you know, maybe equal in making this movie, and they really worked out the story and the storyboards together. Joe Ranft is incredibly important in animation he uh, helped write Oliver and Company, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, James and the Giant Peach, uh, of course, for non-Disney. He is hired by Pixar in 1991 as their head of story. And if you read about Pixar history, a lot of people talk about him as kind of one of the secret reasons that like their movies were so good. <laughs> you know, he worked on Toy Story. He worked on A Bug's Life. He worked on uh, all of their early movies up to Cars. Uh, he dies during the production of Cars. It's the last movie he's involved in. And while not the last Pixar movie, you can kind of draw like post Joe Ranft. A lot of the movies maybe are not as good. He was <laughs> also involved, uh, funnily enough, in Buzz Lightyear of Star Command, The Adventure Begins, which is another <laughs> movie that I kind of love. <laughs> it's not on Disney Plus for whatever reason. It should be, man. That movie is so much fun. 
that movie's pretty darn good. That movie's surprisingly good. It is surprisingly good. That one you get a you can get a lot of good laughs out of. No matter what age you are. Joe Ranft is also the voice of Elmo St. Peter's in this. And the uh, clown who ascends from hell and whispers, run. Yep, that was a hard record right there. One word. (laughs) And uh, the reason uh, he is Elmo St. Peter's is because he and Reese were, you know, working on the storyboards and trying to figure out like what they wanted the voices to sound like. And he did the voice for the character in the movie. And Reese was like, that's really good. Why don't you just do it? (laughs) And so that was his first voice role. And he would go on to play Heimlich in A Bug's Life and Wheezy in Toy Story 2 and uh, Jacques, the prawn in Finding Nemo. He's various voices in The Incredibles. He's Red, the truck who goes like, I'm a Peterbilt for dang sake in Cars. Everyone's favorite, (laughs) most memorable character. Uh, I've seen Cars too much. Nobody, nobody should see Cars. <laughs> he was very important to uh, to Pixar and to many animators of that generation uh, because Reese is of the generation of like and literally went to Cal Arts with like you know Lasseter obviously and Brad Bird and uh, a lot of the animators we've talked about from this time and so like in Coraline there's a reference to Joe Ranft. Uh, in Corpse Bride, there's a reference to Joe Ranft. Even in last year's Soul, his name is on a wall of previous mentors to 22. He's one of the people who tried to mentor 22 um, because that is how much he means to the Pixar guys. There you go. And so his influence is very much in this movie as well. Another thing about Joe Ranft is that while he was still working at Disney, he was also involved in an improv troupe called the Groundlings. And here's why the Groundlings are important. One thing that Reese especially was really pushing against while making this movie is that even though obviously the characters are these ridiculous appliances, Uh he wanted to take the movie very seriously. Um, And he wanted to really inject like real emotions and adult themes and all this stuff into it. And so when they were first auditioning voice actors, they first had the table read. He refuses to say who was at it, but he says it's a lot of the usual suspects of voice actors at this time. (laughs) And he hated their performances because they were all doing very exaggerated, cartoony voices. They're all going like, oh, I'm the toaster, you know? Yeah. And he really wanted people who would bring grounded, naturalistic performances to the toaster. (laughs) So he was going to a lot of Groundling shows at this time, which, again, is this improv sketch comedy troupe in L.A. It's an organization that's very related to Second City, of people know that famous improv troupe in Chicago. And he would watch it, and he would be so impressed because they would do improv and, you know, they'd get the most ridiculous suggestions of like, uh, he tells a story about this sketch where somebody had to play a hot pepper (laughs) who was falling in love with something. And yet they, you know, as improv actors, they would try to get into the character. They would try to get into the performance and be like, well, okay, if I'm playing a hot pepper, I'm going to bring some integrity to the role of the hot pepper. (laughs) So he auditioned a bunch of them for the movie and he liked their performances much better and got the uh, naturalistic performances he was looking for in the movie. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we get, uh, I believe, Tim Stack, Lampy, Deanna Oliver as the toaster, John Lovitz and Phil Hartman. Those two, Lovitz and Hartman, would go on to do SNL. In fact, Lovitz was actually cast on SNL partway through 
like before he could start recording anything on this movie while production was ongoing after he had been cast. Yeah, I saw about that. And so basically because they really wanted him to do the radio that he just did a marathon recording session and called it good. (laughs) Yes, all the other actors recorded all of their lines together. But he did not. As you say, he had a one day. It was literally just him and Jerry Reese. And he had to do all of his lines, all of the singing, all everything. Because Lovitz really wanted to do it, too. Like, he actually kind of pushed off, like, I'm not going to start doing SNL until I can do this movie. And the Groundlings did. Many people would go from the Groundlings to SNL. That's kind of what they are. Like Second City, they are in large part a recruitment organization for (laughs) uh, SNL. People involved with Groundlings would include uh, like Conan O'Brien and uh, Will Ferrell and Will Forte. So it's, you know, it's it's a big deal. Phil Lamar, who goes on to be, you know, a huge voice actor. Tress McNeil, also a voice actor. Melissa McCarthy. You know, you could just I could go on this list for a long time, but you get it. It's like a big deal to be part of the Groundlings. And so it's funny that the Brave Little Toaster is the first (laughs) endeavor to be like, hey, let's hire people from the Groundlings. They seem like they're pretty good actors. (laughs) So Deanna Oliver uh, was cast as the Brave Little Toaster. She auditioned for the role of the air conditioner, where she was apparently going to do a Betty Davis impression. Wild to think about. (laughs) They didn't like that. But they were like, do you want to audition for the role of the toaster? Uh, And she did. And they loved her. And now toaster is referred to in the movie as male. He's referred to as like he. Right. But they cast her as it. And obviously she's not trying to do a male voice at all. And apparently one of the animators working on the movie was very, very upset by this. Famously so. And actually ended up walking out because he was so mad that they would cast a woman You know, like, how can a woman be the toaster? Toaster's a boy. (laughs) And Jerry Reese just replied as he tells the story. It's a toaster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I saw that in the novella, they have no gender at all. It's actually explicitly called out because they are talking to some squirrels or something who are a boy and a girl. And their toasters are like, no, the appliances, I should say, don't have a gender. Yes. They're it's. Right. This is a big part of the book uh, for exactly the reason you're talking about, because they're appliances. And that is the main purpose of their scene with the animals. That doesn't make it into the movie. But I like that that theme of like gender nonconformity is still kind of there by casting Deanna (laughs) Oliver, who I think is great. I think she brings so much integrity to the role of the toaster. (laughs) And then uh, Tim Stack is lampy. Timothy Stack is not uh, a, a actor of particular note, but he has been in a few other things, uh, mostly voice roles. John Lovitz's radio. Obviously, John Lovitz is the most famous member of this cast uh, by far. He would Mm -hmm. go on to do so many things. He would be a ton of voice roles, including like he'd be in The Simpsons a lot and he'd be in the sort of pseudo spinoff of that, the cult animated series, The Critic. He's in a ton of SNL. He's in my favorite SNL sketch ever, which is Robot Repair. (laughs) Uh, If you haven't watched that, I encourage you to look it up. The premise is that there is a show called Robot Repair. Everyone thinks it's a show about repairing robots, but it's actually a home improvement show hosted by a robot. And it just gets more and more ridiculous from there. (laughs) Uh, And so he, of course, he's the radio and he's just, you know, he's got 100 jokes per minute. Right. And Thurl Ravenscroft is Kirby. Thurl Ravenscroft, who we've talked about so much. And there's so many wonderful 
A lot of the information I get for the backstory of this movie comes from Jerry Reese's website, jerryreese.com, where he's just written so much of the behind the scenes and he shared all these behind the scenes photos. I'm sending some to mom now. The just pure delightful photos of Thurl Ravenscroft recording his lines, (laughs) having so much fun. He was so thrilled to get a lead role in this movie and a genuinely like complex role that lets him play a lot of emotions, <laughs> you know, rather than like Tony the Tiger. Right. Or right. in the Disney movies we've talked about just going, someone pulled the sword from the stone. Yeah, he seldom had a very uh, major role. Phil Hartman, again, somebody so famous, I, I barely feel like I need to talk about him. Uh, also in a ton of Simpsons episodes and SNL and just very you know, a famous comedy person who uh, sadly passed away in 1998, uh, died too young for sure. Phil Hartman, by the way, I should say, plays the air conditioner doing a Jack Nicholson impersonation. Yeah, there are several people who do do impersonations in this movie. Yes, and then he plays the hanging lamp doing a Peter Lorre impersonation. So you don't get to hear (laughs) Phil Hartman doing a Phil Hartman voice in this. And then there were, you know, and and so those are kind of the the main actors who I think are all very good, except for I skipped over, I apologize, Timothy E. Day. Yes. uh, Who was just a a child actor in L.A. who plays Blanky. And he was referred to as One Take Timmy because apparently he was a very serious, uh, you know, young child. And he would ask, whenever he had to record a line, he would ask the director, you know, he would ask Reese like these insightful questions about like, so what's my character's motivation? And like, you know, what's kind of happening here? And he'd just ask a question or two. And then he would apparently just like kill the line. Yep. And all the voice actors talk about one take Timmy and how impressed they were. <laughs> and, you know, the, the scene, the couple of scenes actually where he has to cry, which is like very hard for any actor to do. And he just like did it. He was able to just connect to that. And I think he's really good in this for a child voice actor. And especially when you watch the sequels where it's not him. Oh my <laughs> word, do you miss one take to me? <laughs> I don't even think he was in any other movies. I think he was just in this. And that's probably for the best. That probably means he had a pretty good life. <laughs> Yeah. And so all the voice actors, other than John Lovitz, as mentioned, recorded together. And Reese would have them record the script as written uh, and then record ad libs. Right. Uh, And so this is this again. This is a Disney movie that is a lot of first. This is the first Disney movie to include ad lib dialogue predating Aladdin. Mm hmm. And they really like they talk about, you know, these recording sessions like they were all together. They were really trying to get into the characters. Mm -hmm. You know, it it just kind of sounds like working on this movie was a very stressful, but also kind of magical time where like everyone was just on the same page and also on the same page was David Newman. David Newman does the score for this movie, which I think is incredibly important. He's gone on to do several other scores, including the underrated score, in my opinion, for uh, Galaxy Quest. (laughs) And he still talks about this as like his favorite score was the first one he really did. I should say he wrote the score to the uh, Don Bluth film Anastasia, for which he got an Oscar nomination. Ah. But he talks about this still as like his best score or one of his best scores. And I absolutely agree. Um, I think his work here is amazing Uh Uh, and it's really interesting to hear him talk about all the work he did for example 
Quote, each character has a specific issue, he says. Toaster would reflect other people's emotions, so I wrote a theme that looped around itself. Blanky is just a baby who's afraid of everything, which made me play him with a simple childlike theme. Lampy is always trying to shine a light on something, so his theme is quicker and more fun. Kirby the vacuum cleaner is a grumpier older person, which comes across in lower chords. Radio's like a 1930s newscaster. Uh, so he has a brassy fanfare. Almost everything in the score has one of these themes, end quote. Again, it's just really interesting to read him talk about the score. And like, again, the main thing Reese was saying to him was like, I want this to sound like a real movie score, like a serious movie score. I don't want it to be like, oh, we're doing wacky cartoon music. Like what we again, we've talked about this with like Fox and the Hound, where it'll be a very serious scene. But the music will be like, no, 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 no. Right. He was like, no, we are taking this movie. I mean, there are jokes in it. There is humor, but we are taking the story very seriously. And I think if you listen to this score and you're really listening to it, you can hear how the themes are incorporated so well, as are the songs by Van Dyke Parks, a very famous musician and songwriter. He collaborated with the Beach Boys and Ringo Starr and U2 and Randy Newman and Harry Nilsson. His first paid job was arranging, he didn't write it, but he arranged the music for uh, a little song called The Bare Necessities for The Jungle Book. (laughs) So he did have an involvement with Disney prior to this. He also uh, was involved in uh, arranging a lot of the songs for the absolutely bizarre Robert Altman live action Popeye. Uh, And he wrote the four songs for this uh, with instrumentation arranged by Newman, who loved the sung song so much that he incorporated that into the score. And so City of Light in particular, the first song you hear all throughout the score. You do. As the theme for the quest, you know, the mission to get to the city. I think the music does a lot in this, especially because, you know. I think the animation, this is superbly well done. And Reese and several of the animators They knew that the animation was going to be outsourced to Taiwan, but they actually went to Taiwan to direct the animators there because they were like, we know you're going to be doing a lot of it, but like they really wanted to make sure it was done right. Mm -hmm. So this is cheap outsourced animation, but I feel like it does look really good and you can tell people really cared. And to be honest, compared to a lot of the other Bronze Era films, I think it's way it it seems like really good. Like, I think this is one of the best animated films we've watched in a while, if only because there's no reused characters or bizarre, ugly composite shots like in Black Cauldron. <laughs> this movie's cheaply animated, but it feels cohesive. It does. It feels cohesive. If we were watching it in the middle of the Silver Era or the Renaissance Era, forget it. This movie looks like trash, but yeah. Again, the the integrity of this movie is really kind of undeniable. Like everyone working on this really cared. They still talk about it as a lot of their best work. And they all really had a unified vision. And this is the the film that they wanted to make. Always good to have have people passionate about a project. I do want to say just uh, while I was going through the cast is a super weird thing. Deanna Oliver has mostly uh, gone on to become a writer. She wrote for the animated series Animaniacs and Tiny Toon Adventures. She also wrote the screenplay for the live action Casper the Friendly Ghost movie, which she wrote with Sherry Stoner, the voice actor for Slappy the Squirrel in Animaniacs, and J.J. Abrams, (laughs) the ruiner of Star Wars. (laughs) The Casper the Friendly Ghost movie is one of the strangest movies ever. Maybe mm-hmm. it's 
bizarre. It's a movie about an ancient child ghost who falls in love with a human girl. I'm trying to remember if that's the one I saw. Because there's been more than one Casper movie. And I have seen at least one of them I thought was actually pretty decent. This is the 1995 movie. It's, I think it's very bad, but it's so weird you almost have to respect it. So Deanna Oliver wrote that, which is a really weird career, but she seems pretty happy where things have gone, even though, you know, she didn't get to be on SNL or whatever. Okay, so as I say, I could talk a lot more about the making of this movie, but I guess I'll stop for now unless as we're going through it, something else comes to me that I need to bring up. Um, (laughs) Let's talk about the release of it. So it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 1988, and it was the first animated film ever exhibited at Sundance and remained the only one until 2001 (laughs) when a movie nobody remembers called Waking Life was exhibited there as well. And it was really really popular. It was beloved there. Mm -hmm. The judges at the award ceremony wanted to award it the best film, uh, but decided not to because like they were like, well, we can't actually give that high honor to an animated movie. But several of the judges afterwards were like, you guys did make the best film, though. And (laughs) asterisk. Yes. But the but like it was really beloved at Sundance, which is, you know, a big like art house Film festival, you know, this was seen as like this movie is a true piece of art. And a lot of the reviews that came out of Sundance, uh, because, you know, critics go to Sundance and review the movies in advance, were like, this movie is great. You know, it's a masterpiece. It's one of the best animated films ever, all of which is objectively correct. And (laughs) also, the one thing that came up in those reviews a lot, especially because, like, at this point in 1987, Disney animation is bad. Clearly that, you know, the Great Mouse Detective that came out last year was pretty good, but basically nobody saw it. And their last several movies before that were huge disasters. Yeah. And of course, it was known that like this is a movie that Disney turned down, made mostly by animators and producers who fled Disney because it sucked. (laughs) And so they were like, you know, Disney's an idiot for letting go of this great movie and these great people who worked on it. And this is the kind of movie they should be making and the kind of movie Disney can't make came up a lot. Uh-huh. And so Disney gets very mad about this. And to make a long story short, they killed any chance of it getting a proper theatrical distribution. Basically because Brave Little Toaster did secure theatrical distribution through another company, so it was going to be released in theaters, mm-hmm. but they released the movie on television first knowing that no theatrical distributor would want to release it after it had been on television, which is still true today. Theaters don't like releasing movies that have come out first on streaming or at the same time on streaming, which streaming is television. It's okay if you want to pretend, you know, that that's (laughs) a proper way to release a movie, but it's television. So it it was the same thing here. And so they intentionally killed its chance to get a, a distributor. It played in art house theaters a couple times, but basically Disney intentionally buried it by being like, this is a Disney Channel movie and we're only going to play it on the Disney Channel at awful times. So nobody's going to see this thing, (laughs) which obviously everyone making the movie was very upset about and should be very upset about. And Disney did put out a VHS release and a DVD release, both of which are awful. Uh, and neither of which we watched. You and I watched this movie on a totally legal 
website.biz. <laughs> and we I we actually watched a much better print than the current official Disney print, which I do own. I've bought the DVD just to make sure I always have a copy of this movie. <laughs> uh, but the DVD print is awful. It Jerry Reese has talked about how bad it is. It has this wobble in it. Literally, the picture is wobbling through so much of it. There's so much grain and stains on the print or whatever. But there is a, a UK release that was taken from a different print that's much better. And so that is what we uh, legally watched. Yeah, and it sucks. And this movie still is not on Disney+. Plus. It has never been released to streaming, uh, even though the two sequels have. Does Disney have the streaming rights for this movie? Nobody knows for sure. There is no official word from Disney or anybody else. What you'll see a lot online is people saying, well, it's a Hyperion movie, not a Disney movie, so Disney doesn't have the rights to release it. But, number one, Hyperion is no longer an independent company. They are now a Disney subsidiary. Correct. So saying Disney can't release it because it's a Hyperion movie is like saying Disney can't put Black Widow on Disney Plus because it's a Marvel Studios movie. Like, that's... Right, right, right. Maybe, though, because it was made without the involvement of Disney initially, maybe there is some rights issue. But to that, I always say, like, as I've said before on this podcast, Disney can resolve any rights issue they want. It's true. They literally write U.S. copyright law, which is another thing we've talked about on this podcast. Like... They could do whatever they want if they want to. My conspiracy theory, and I have no evidence for this, I think there is still an exec or some execs at Disney who hate this movie. Or there's some internal directive of, like, bury this movie because they were embarrassed by the quality of it compared to the garbage Disney was mostly putting out at this time. Um, and And they don't like the darkness of it, and they don't like, you know... It's really funny to look up like home video releases of this movie because they look so cute and so cartoony. (laughs) And I always joke about how the tagline of the film Disney always uses is an adorable adventure that kids will treasure, which is just lies. That's that's objectively (laughs) false. Versus like the original posters for the film Jerry Reese has on his website, what his poster for the movie would have been that is much more upfront and honest about the type of movie you're going to be watching. Here's his poster here. It's the toaster in silhouette on this blue background with these scary trees. It's all very shadowed. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your appliances are? Yeah, the tagline <laughs> is very silly, but, you know, the 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 yeah. darkness is is there. And the, for some reason, the vacuum cleaner is always purple and wildly off model on all of the like official release covers. <laughs> I don't know why they do that. I don't know why they do any of that. But Disney hates this movie and they always have. And unfortunately, it seems like they always will, which is a shame because Reese talks about like he has, you know, a film reel of this movie. If anyone ever wants to put out an HD re-release, which this movie could really use, because as you talked about, the sound mixing in this movie is really bad, Mm -hmm. mainly with the songs. The songs are incomprehensible Uh, on Spotify and elsewhere. There was in 2010 an official soundtrack release uh, on vinyl and elsewhere that was overseen by David Newman and the songs are restored and they sound so much better (laughs) and you can actually comprehend the words in them. So like, again, these super high quality recordings of these songs exist 
But Disney doesn't care. Disney doesn't want really anyone to see this movie, it seems. And they certainly don't care about putting it in good quality or giving it special features. There's 20 minutes of deleted scenes that I don't think would make this movie better because obviously I think this movie is perfect. But, (laughs) you, you know, I would like to see those 20 fully animated minutes that they cut out. I'm curious about them. Like, mm-hmm. so that is, you know, if, if you take one thing away from this, I, I would, if, if this podcast achieves anything at all, I would love <laughs> to start like uh, people on Twitter asking Disney to at least poop it out on Disney plus <laughs> in some garbage <laughs> Blu-ray traced restoration that completely sucks. Like do something, please, mm-hmm. please. But until then, uh, This movie does have some fans, especially some people who, you know, grew up with it and found it somehow uh, and have uploaded it to uh, various websites. And it's pretty easy to find a better than the official release version of this movie if you want to do that. And I highly recommend you do because more even than usual, screw Disney. (laughs) Uh, And basically because of that, you know, the few reviews this movie got were good and it was nominated for an Emmy because it is a TV movie, but it's never really, as I say, gotten much attention or acclaim. It kind of is a movie that doesn't exist a bit for a lot of people or it's or it's like half remembered again. Like, oh, yeah, I think I saw that as a kid. But, uh, you know, it's not it's not talked about as the great work of independent animated filmmaking that I think it is. Mm -hmm. So shall we go ahead and talk about this movie that you hate? (laughs) I don't hate it. I just don't love it like you do. You said that this movie was worse than 9-11. I never said that. What are you talking about? I remember you saying that pretty clearly. I think if you roll back the tapes, listeners, you'll hear. No, of course I'm kidding. Uh, Tell tell us about this here. (laughs) Tell us about this movie. Well, the movie starts in a fog. (laughs) Yes, I obviously love this opening. This is like the opening for Fox and the Hound done right, because it's quiet. There's some fog and then you see a forest and then you see a cottage and you're getting some opening credits. But this one, at least it doesn't feel as boring as Fox and the Hound. It's hard to explain why. I really am not really sure what exactly is it about this one. I mean, I know Isaac, it's not boring to him because he just loves the entire movie. Everything about (laughs) it is great. But I will say this is a more interesting opening than Fox and the Hound, which is just so dull and quiet. Yeah, there's a lot of first of all, I think the David Newman score is really good. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can hear it all perfectly in my memory because I've seen this so much. (laughs) There's like the. Little there's like little sounds with bells. You get a little bit of city of light, but there is more movement in this. There's bats flying around and it's all this very cool shade of blue. It's the same colors that are on the picture of Jerry Reese's poster that I sent you. Yeah. And we're getting a little bit introduced to all the characters, but just as they're not alive versions, because this invents the rule that Toy Story steals of the the. Appliances are mostly, you know, inanimate. They can act inanimate and like freeze. Right. But become inanimate when nobody's watching them. Become animated. And the toaster here is introduced as 100% reflective. You see the reflection. Of the sun. Yes. And this is something that Reese talks about. They obviously, they really had to find grounded characters for all of these appliances and they based it. They're not much like the characters in the books and they based it on 
the behaviors of them. Um, so to quote Reese, we needed to have characters who would really complement one another. So we created opposites within the group uh-huh. to do that. We looked at how each character dealt with the loss of his master. Toaster is warm and people are comforted by their reflection in it. Radio is constantly trying to be the entertainer. Lampy thinks he's bright, but is actually pretty dim. Vacuum holds things inside and has a nervous breakdown because of it. And Blanky is insecure because he doesn't have his child to hug. (laughs) So they tried to ground it in these interpretations of the characters. And as he says there, the main thing that they come up with for Toaster is kind of a weird thing to pick. But the fact that toasters are reflective. Yeah. Or at least this toaster is. This is the shiniest toaster of all time. (laughs) And so... That is what will allow this character to be the first of any of these characters that feels empathy Mm -hmm. because she, he, whatever, is reflective. And so that is why it is introduced being 100% reflective. And we get some really cool backgrounds here. Yeah. Uh, I forget who worked on the backgrounds, uh, but it was a very like it was a, a Disney animator of some renown. You probably wouldn't know the name, but when I saw what they worked on, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> so the first movement or whatever by the appliances we get is the radio turns on like the alarm clock on the radio. And at first you think, oh, it's just, you know, the radio is playing stuff on the radio. But then you suddenly realize it's actually talking The lamp starts complaining about being waken up so early. I'm pretty sure you don't see who it is talking at first, but then, you know, you start to figure it out. And the radio is dancing on the bed and there's a and then you realize it's the blanket. The air conditioning wakes up and turns on. And the lamp has this bit because the lamp is stupid where he repeats words a lot. And so here he's talking about like. Something about it's hard to sleep around here with all that racket around here. Like he's mm-hmm. always repeating the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And again, the animation here is really cool. Like the lamp is introduced as just this bright circle in the dark. You don't even see the lamp yet. Just the light. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because light is a big visual motif throughout this movie. And, you know, the character animation, uh, I think, even though this is your least favorite movie ever made, I think you'll agree that <laughs> you're kind of exaggerating here. No, I don't think I am. Uh, But I think you'll agree that the character animation is very good, especially, you know, this was one of the hardest talents for them is figuring out how to put character into like a toaster, Mm -hmm. a lamp, a radio that doesn't even have a face. It's true. I can't find who the, the background person was. It was somebody who had left Disney who like worked during the silver era. So I I apologize. I'm sure somebody knows who it is. I have 800 tabs of research open. It's in one of them, but (laughs) yeah, it's, but the backgrounds are, are very good. I think. Yep. Uh, Eventually, you know, they're all getting together. What are we going to do today? And, you know, Toaster's like, clean the house as usual. And they're like, oh, I don't want to do it. And then they're like, well, well, how about we have a game? Let's clean the house. (laughs) Yes. At the beginning of this movie, these characters are so mean to each other. They really are. And that is like, they're not just mean in that cartoon movie way where it's like, oh, they're a little annoyed with each other, but not in a way that truly has any edge to it. And they're obviously going to be friends. Like in order to sell the fact that these characters are later friends and later do love each other, you know, they start them as truly mean and pretty much all unlikable, which is mm-hmm. one like 
right off the bat, this movie loses a lot of people because of that, because you really can't like any of them. I only like them now because it's like I know where they'll go. I think it's so weird that they have spent so long in this house alone and they hate each other so much when they do this one light little tiny adventure and then they're best friends forever. (laughs) Well, I mean, first of all, it's a movie. And I'll talk about why I think that is. But they're not really they don't care about each other. They only care about the master. They have zero empathy again. And that is basically what they have to learn throughout this movie is empathy, which is great. It's, you know, it's wonderful to think that people could learn empathy and, you know, get vaccinated, for example. (laughs) Very true. Yeah. and, And this is where we're getting all the characters and they're all so Grumpy and so mean, you know, the, the Kirby, the vacuum cleaner, has a line about like, it's not supposed to be fun. It's work. And the master, of it course, chores. The master is very much a stand in for God. And this movie plays with a lot of religious themes. And uh, this so the the starting point of this movie is what if God had abandoned you? <laughs> so right off the bat, we're getting into some pretty dark stuff. Yep. So they're going to clean the house with the radio playing some music to pep them up and make them enthused about it. So we get the first song, Tutti Frutti. Which is fun. Obviously not written for this movie. Yes, this movie, not that that song, not written for this movie, but uh, a good song. Probably the first place I remember hearing this song. And then we have, yeah, house cleaning montage. Yes, and this montage has so many good character moments. I wrote a lot of them down. We get two instances of the toaster's reflection being important. Radio is constantly making things harder because radio is super annoying. (laughs) Yeah. They're riding around on a skateboard for a little bit, which is foreshadowing and setting up like how they're going to go on this journey. Mm -hmm. My favorite moment is Kirby's secret dance. He sneaks behind the couch. He makes very sure no one else is watching. And only then does he start to dance because, as mentioned, he's keeping everything inside. He's he's a closed off, secretive person, vacuum cleaner. And this is the first time I'd ever noticed that all throughout the house, everything above during this montage, we see Blinky dusting, but, you know, can only dust about as tall as a vacuum cleaner, which he's writing on top of. Right. Throughout every scene in the house, you can see that it has been dusted and cleaned up to that point, but not above it. And I had never, this movie has so many details that even though I've seen it a hundred times, I had never noticed that before. Possibly because again, we were watching a uh, a much better print than I usually watch. That's totally legal <laughs> uh, in the United States. And... Uh, we both, of course, flew to the UK to watch the UK print as as you know, that's how we did that. <laughs> but again, that's just the level of detail is insane. Yes. And they look like they're actually interacting with the backgrounds. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> look like they're in the same. It's been a little while since we've seen yeah, that. I know. This is what I'm talking about, where it's like compared to Broad Zero movies this is the best looking movie ever made. <laughs> <laughs> then, of course, As they're cleaning, suddenly the blanket hears a car. Right. And one thing about the blanket is that it is drawn in a particular shade of yellow that is almost never used in animation because it's kind of ugly. And the colors in this are, you know, very muted, very grounded, very kind of muddy at points. And we only see the color of the blanket in two other places. One place is here which is when Blinky is having this dream sequence, imagining that the blue car pulling up is the master 
like the road is the color of the blanket and the car turns into the color of the blanket. Like, again, seeing everything as the same color that he is because he doesn't have any empathy. Well, he is a little more because he's a little kid, but like, you know, everyone sees what they want to see, just like everyone sees what they want to see in Toaster. Before we get to his little uh, imagination dream sequence, when he they they make this big tower so Blanky can get up into the attic to look out the attic window for the best view of the car. And you can see there again on the floor, there's a little dusted path that Blanky's been making every time he goes to look out the window. And so then he he has a dream sequence when he, he sees a car approaching that he thinks that it's like, it's the master. Yay. And then the car swooshes past and it's like, nope, it's just a regular any old car that drove past. Not that he says that, but he does climb down very sadly and then goes and finds a picture of the master and starts crying. And I have to say uh, one take Timmy, Timothy Day also plays young Rob in this scene. Young Rob and Blanky are talking to each other. They sound different. Yep. Really impressive work, little Timmy. Not that he says very much, the young Rob. No, but they still do sound different, which is still impressive. Yep, they do. Yeah, so Blanky's crying, vacuums cranky, lampies. Yeah, I know. You're not getting out of here in two hours. You talked about the path uh, (laughs) in the dust in the attic. You were talking about why none of them like each other when they've been stuck for so long, because they've been living the same day every single day, because at this point, they really are just appliances. They are just machines. They do what they've always done. They just follow their function and they need a catalyst to snap them out of that that same old lifeless routine. And I have to say, at certain points, this movie feels like a comment about Disney at the time. (laughs) Maybe that's just me reading. Obviously, I read a lot into this movie, some of which comes from like me watching a million interviews with Jerry Reese and knowing its author intent. Some of it is me reading a lot into this movie that I think does have a lot of depth and thematic intent to it. But like stagnant, crappy old place where everyone hates each other. Interesting. (laughs) And also one of the like cruelest moments to me is when Blinky is crying and getting upset and climbing down. Lampy keeps asking, like, was it him? Was it the master? Because he's so stupid. Yeah, he can't figure out. I was going to say that was that's his that's his dimness. Context clues, man. And it could be played for a joke. But to me, that's just like, come on. He asks it so much that it becomes painful. It's like, shut up, dude. Like, read the room. Yeah. (laughs) Kirby, the meanest of all of them, hates the blanket. And I, he has a line here that's kind of funny where he goes, cry, cry, weep, wail, and sob. It's disgusting. <laughs> so the vacuum tries to take the picture away. They have a tug of war. It flies through the air and the glass gets broken. Gasp. Everyone's so upset because, you know, this is their image of their Lord and Savior, you know. The master. And then the air conditioning laughs at them. Right. The air conditioning, who again is Phil Hartman doing an impression of Jack Nicholson. Yep. And this is the first part that I remember, like, really kind of creeping me out as a kid. Like, what is going on in this weird movie? (laughs) (laughs) I really like this performance, even though it is mostly an impression. 
But, you know, all these line readings where he's talking about like, you know, something, you're a real bright little lamp, you know, making fun of him. And of course, the the trailer line, because I definitely saw trailers for this movie a lot. We've been dumped, abandoned. Yes, I have that. Exactly. I was like, there's the trailer line. There is also a good moment here where like Kirby is talking about the master and, and standing up for the rest of them against the mean old air conditioner. He says something nice about Blinky. I forget what Blinky walks up and goes like, you really think so? And Kirby immediately goes, I'm not talking to you. Yeah. Like I will talk good about you to someone else, but not to you. <laughs> yes. And then uh toaster sees to the heart of the matter and says, You're just jealous because the master couldn't play with you. You're too high. He couldn't reach. And then the AC loses his cool and blows up. Yes, he he freaks out. And it's clearly like he's toaster is absolutely correct because the air conditioner is like, I could help it if the kid was too short to reach my dials. Yeah. And he screams, it's my function. And yeah, this is the first, again, this movie plays a lot with suicide. This is the first, essentially a suicide. He seems to kill himself with rage and he dies. And you see his corpse and you see pieces of his face fall off, which is a shot you would not get in any other Disney movie, even if it is an (laughs) air conditioner. I don't think we would be seeing air conditioner corpse. (laughs) And yeah, everything about this is disturbing and distressing and a lot of you know, people online talk about like, yeah, this scene traumatized me as a kid. Mm-hmm. It's creepy, it's scary, it's dark, but it's setting up a lot of important stuff. And then they hear another car coming. They don't bother to set up their big tower to go look because they're all like, whatever. It's just going to drive by again. But then they're like, it's actually sounds like it's coming closer. What? And so they hear somebody's actually coming up to the porch. So they go get in their positions They're normal, you know, on the counter, in the closet, whatever positions. And then they hear a sound and they look out and there's a for sale sign being hammered into the ground in front of the cottage. And they're all ready to give up. They're like, well, shoot, the master's clearly never coming back if they're selling the cottage. Yep. Radio puts his antenna at half mast and is playing taps. Again, radio has a lot of jokes, and I think a lot of them are funny, even though the character, especially at this point, is profoundly annoying. But that's so he can be better later. And Mm -hmm. a joke I always enjoy is when a character gets on their soapbox and gets on a soapbox, as Toaster does here. Toaster gets on an actual soapbox and says, we're going to the city. And one stylistic choice you'll see throughout this movie is these super crazy high angles or low angles Mm -hmm. uh, that are super steep. And I think it's done to emphasize like how small these characters are. But this is one of the first big instances of that is we get a super like high heroic angle on Toaster. And again, light being a motif of this movie, as Toaster is convincing all the characters, they step into a circle of light. Blanky, of course, agrees to go first. And then the radio and the lamp. And basically they talk Kirby into joining. He probably wants to go, but won't admit it, you know, because that's how he is. This is one of the funniest jokes in the movie to me, which is Toaster going, you know, 
I think we'll need someone who's really smart, right? Trying to flatter right, him right, into right. it. And then the other characters say, and loud and grumpy and oblivious to reality. Right, right, right. <laughs> like they totally don't pick up on it. Yeah, they can't figure out what he's trying to do. And then more funny jokes because we've had some really dark stuff and now the adventure's getting started and we should have any lightheartedness at all, maybe. Yes. Which is Lampy's... Lampy's idea for how they're going to travel to the city. I didn't write them all down, but they are very funny and very bad. I did. Number one, push a bed down the stairs. (laughs) They all fall. Number two... The pogo stick. Oh, my goodness. The pogo stick is a terrible <laughs> idea. Number three. Everyone sits in the fridge and the fridge is on a skateboard. How come that fridge isn't alive? Don't worry about it. <laughs> because these are all metaphors for types of people. And <laughs> you shouldn't take it too literally. If you do, you go insane. And that's. Yeah, but there's a later fridge that's alive. Yeah, they're not all alive. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Maybe because it's unplugged. They killed it. They killed it. Mom, are you happy? <laughs> They're all unplugged most of the time. And then it's funny. Lampy has another idea, but they all say, shut up. And then we have radio's idea. This is another just cracks me up so much, which is they're all going to be on a magic carpet. So they're all just sitting on a rug and he's saying like, arise, magic carpet. And (laughs) it's two great reactions, which is Toaster just has this face like this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. I can't believe we're even entertaining this. And then Lampy has this super huge, excited grin like, wow, we're going to run on a magic <laughs> They're both so funny. But then Toaster's idea is to tie Blakey to her back like a cape and fly like Superman. So the- <laughs> yeah, like that's going to work. And then eventually they all kind of together come to the idea of I think technically it's Toaster who first does this, but together they figure out we'll have a chair. The vacuum cleaner can push it because he's the only one who's mobile. Pull it. But he'll need a battery. And so they get this car battery and they they figure it all out. And the, the reveal of the car battery is really awesome. Like it's lit in this crazy way and it's super yeah, dramatic. Ta-da! Great musical score behind it. And uh, listen, one thing that people talk about with this movie is like, well, it doesn't make logical sense, which is a bad way to think about any movie. But people talk about like they're not plugged in for a lot of the time and they're fine, but they say that they'll need power for the vacuum cleaner to drive. My interpretation is You can do a little bit without power, but you can't, you know, drive cross country without a battery. (laughs) Of course, the actual answer is don't worry about it. Calm down. The answer is it's a movie. You should try and just relax. It's a metaphor for God and depression and whatever. And it's what we've talked about of like the Ken Anderson style of these things are caricatures of real things. Don't take it literally because that's a. That's boring. But it is very true that sometimes you can't help but think about that stuff. And that is partly why I don't think this movie is as wonderful as you think it is, because it's very hard to not think about some of these things. And you should be able to, when you're watching a movie, completely let it go for it to be a perfect movie to me. It's about whether or not you connect to the characters and themes, because that's really what this movie has going for it. And if you don't like the characters, I understand why a lot of people don't like this movie. I understand why you don't like this movie. But if you connect to it, I mean, it's it's 
I think a lot of great art is not universally acceptable because to make something that everyone likes a lot of the time, with very few exceptions, you have to make it kind of the most watered down version of itself. Whereas the things I think you're going to connect the most to are the things that are a little weird that not everyone likes, but they hit you just right. They're so specific that they're not going to appeal to everyone, but they will again, they will really get you. Uh, and anyway, this movie is perfect. That's all there is to it. I, again, objectively, I think if you look at the facts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Blanky, of course, brings the photo of the master along as they get started on their journey. And they open the door and the cottage is drawn darker than ever. And when they open the door, it's very bright because, again, they're constantly driving to the light. Mm-hmm. And the light is, you know, the the visual metaphor for their quest. And uh, I like how they're relating to the world where... Kirby thinks the grass is shag carpet and uh, they think the sun is a really big lamp. Right. Radio says he's going to navigate because he definitely knows everything. <laughs> this will, of course, go well. Mm-hmm. Lampy steps on Blanky and they're yelling and fighting. They can't stop bickering for two seconds at this point. Bicker, bicker, bicker. And then they sing the first song, which is City of Light. Now, I'm curious what you think of this song, because my opinion on this song has changed a lot the more I've watched the movie. This is not my favorite song in this movie. It does annoyingly get stuck in my head, but the problem with it is, is I can only remember part of it. So that's why it gets stuck in my head, not because I like it. Also, even when I sit down and like read the lyrics of the song, it doesn't always make sense, like what the point of it is. It's I tend to feel like this song in this place in the movie, it's like, we need a song now. So here it is. That is definitely how I felt about it at first. And I would like to say that I found more meaning in it. You will probably say that I'm just such an apologist for this movie (laughs) that I've read meaning into it. So the thing you have to understand about Van Dyke Park's songs in this movie is that we've talked about how a lot of the Disney movies, the songs move the story forward. That is not true in this movie. The songs never move the story forward. You could cut them all out and the story would be the same. But this is not a movie about story. This is why it frustrates you because if you think about it as a story, it is massive holes. Mm -hmm. That's not the type of movie this is. This movie is about themes. Spoilers, I like my movies with stories. Except you love Sleeping Beauty. Which has a story. Good triumphs over evil. We talked about it in the episode, though. Okay, but it's, I don't know, it's a lot prettier. (laughs) (laughs) I like the ugliness. That's what I'm saying. Maybe the, you know. The point is, the songs in this movie are all about themes. They're all about kind of the emotion that the characters are experiencing in this situation. And there are, you know, a hijack to give you extra emotions because we all connect to music in that way. So this song is annoying. It's sickly sweet. It is. It's not a very good song to just listen to. I think that that's because these characters definitely don't know what kind of a journey they're in for. So they're singing this very idyllic, this is very much the Disney I want song, as you've said on previous episodes. This is the, this is what we want. This is going to be our great journey. And we're going to go to the city of light. (laughs) And it feels false and hollow and wrong because none of that's going to come true. When they get to the city, it's super dark and grimy. Their adventure is not going to be fun. It's going to be a nightmare. (laughs) So that is how I interpret all of this Uh, And especially 
when we get to the animals in a moment here, they're going to do a reprise of it that is even like grosser and weirder. Mm-hmm. And the animal section to me very much reads as almost a parody of Disney, not in that crass Shrek way of like that movie literally opens with Shrek wiping his butt on a storybook like the Disney storybooks. Mm-hmm. But in the way of like, you know, this is kind of you think this is going to be a cute Disney encounter with animals and instead it's weird and dark and upsetting. That's kind of how I interpret this. It's like a weird and dark and upsetting version of uh, the usual kind of Disney I want song. That's my interpretation. Of course, the most important part of the song is everyone relating to the master in their own way, which is Lampy says, master is a man with a plan I can understand. Yes. And Toaster says, master is a man of great reflection. And Radio says, Master is a man who lays his hand across the land using his antenna, making it very obvious. And Blanky says, Master is a man of our affection. So, again, they can all only connect to things right now by seeing them as extensions of themselves. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, the master must be like me, which, again, the master is a metaphor for God. Very interesting because you can't <laughs> you and I both believe in a God and you can't understand a God. Right. The The whole point is that you can't truly understand what such a being is like. And so we ascribe qualities of ourself onto God, because that's the only way we have of understanding him. So that's a really important part of this song. Uh, And there's a lot of character work during this montage, Uh, like Lampy is going to start singing, but Blanky interrupts him and he's mad. And, you know, we're, we're doing all that good stuff. But after the song, We get to uh, some creepy thistles and thorns. Yeah. Because these characters are now entering hell and they will not leave until the last one minute of the movie. It's one of my favorite Lampy lines where he's they all realize the radio has no idea where he's going. And Lampy (laughs) calls radio Mr. Loudmouth, Mr. Big Loudmouth. (laughs) He's trying to basically navigate by finding a radio station in the city and leading them towards it. But anyway, they're they're traveling on. They find a a clearing, right? And then they're going to try to sleep. Yes. And this is, again, where they're having this fight. Lampy is going to crush radio with a big rock. Toaster kind of talks him down. And the very important thing here is that Blanky wants to sleep with somebody. Yeah, wants to snuggle with somebody else because he's a blanket. He's supposed to cover a thing. And everyone turns him down, even Toaster. Nobody likes the blanket. And this is very important. Nobody wants to snuggle with the blanket. Which, again, is like, this is so cruel for a Disney Mm -hmm. movie. But it's so these characters can experience real growth, not just the, like, 2% growth of (laughs) a lot of Disney's worst characters. And this this scene is heartbreaking to me, especially when Toaster turns him down. Like, you kind of expect it from everybody else, but then even Toaster... Yeah. Uh, uh, and the performances are so naturalistic that you actually feel the emotions of this. So then the next day, we get all the weird animal stuff I was talking about. Yep, they get finally get through all the thorns, and there's a like a pond with birds and frogs and bugs doing the City of Light song with like buzzing noises and things like that. It's this, again, very weird, almost perverse version of, you know, oh, it's cute Disney animals, but they're all weird and they're all Mm -hmm. pushy and annoying and cruel. And I mean, there's mice that nibble on Blinky and try to Kidnap him? Kill him? Question mark? Well, they're probably just trying to take him for, you know, nest lining, right? 
because actual mice will take small bits of fabric or whatever to make a nest out of. So that's probably what's going on. They nibble a little bit on the master's picture. There's a frog who likes his reflection in the toaster. And then all the other animals are looking at their reflection in the toaster. There's a goofy bit with a singing fish and a worm that leads to a parody of a Bubsy Berkeley type musical number, which I have no interpretation of this. It's just a funny thing they wanted to do. It harkens back to those early Disney shorts, kind of, and and some of the package film type, you know, just, oh, here's a silly thing that happens for no reason. Yep. Finally, Toaster, like, runs away from everybody because he's tired of everybody just looking at the reflection and he's he gets overwhelmed he like has anxiety like all the characters in these movies and this is one of the most important scenes in the movie and a lot of people don't understand it a lot of people again online will talk about like this scene doesn't make any sense it's almost too subtle for its own good and this comes pretty much straight from the book but the flower actually talks so toaster goes into a clearing and there's a flower the flower sees its reflection in the toaster Mm -hmm. and In the book, it's made clear that it's falling in love with its reflection in the toaster. In this case, it seems like it's falling in love with the toaster itself. Either way, it wants the toaster to stay. Toaster abandons it and is like, you know, no, I'm not a flower. Like, go away, leave. It's very much like how he rejected Blanky the night before. And the flower is the only other thing in this movie that is the same color as Blanky. Mm -hmm. It is a very deliberate choice that the animators talk about. It's not that obvious, though, if you don't know. Especially, again, this is another area where the bad picture quality lets you down. Like, it Mm -hmm. truly does. As I say, maybe this is too subtle for its own good that it's this color thing. But even without the color thing, I think you should be able to get. So Toaster abandons the flower the way it did Blinky, and the flower dies. Yep, it like dies of sadness. Yes, it again, this is our this is another suicide in this movie. And it's the point is, this is where Toaster learns that if I'm not nice to the blanket, like it's going to die. Something horrible is going to happen. Like a child needs affection and the way I've been treating the blanket is selfish and horrible and something bad will happen, just like it happened to this flower that happens to be the same color as blanket. So this is where Toaster really realizes the importance of empathy and demonstrates this immediately by going out and rescuing uh, Blanky from the aforementioned mice. Yep. They all leave this weird, slightly creepy situation. And they travel into some redwood trees. So obviously they're in California. Right. And now Toaster is protecting Blanky from Lampy's teasing. Mm -hmm. They enter the creepy woods. The battery's running low. That's important. Yep. There's a bit with Lampy in a scary tree. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, it's a scary scary tree. tree. I'm afraid. So they're going to find a place to stay the night and Blanky makes a tent of himself. And they stay under the tent and Toaster's being a lot more affectionate to the blanket And Lampy notices this. And this is a conversation of these two people trying to relate to each other and trying to express emotions that they've never had to express. Never, you know, they don't have the capacity for this. They're appliances. They just work. They don't, they've had all the emotion, like, gone from them. So they're really trying to relate to each other. Lampy's like, I'm trying to understand why you're being nice to the blanket now. I thought we were agreed we all hate each other. And Toaster's... (laughs) trying to explain and it's like it's a it's a 
warm feeling. It's like when you have bread inside of you. It's <laughs> it's kind of a glow, he finally says. And then Lampy's like, oh. Because Toaster is reflective, Toaster is able to be the bridge to empathy. He is able to find a way to express this in a way Lampy can relate to that I, I think no other character could. And so basically Toaster kind of teaches Lampy empathy and Lampy has this story about like first time he has burnt out bulb. Right. And he thought that he was going to be, you know, destroyed like, oh, no, I don't have my function. I have no reason to live. But the master replaced his bulb and he's like, and I just glowed. And it's a really powerful moment, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's again, this also pays off immediately. We got to have economy of storytelling because we have economy of budget. (laughs) But first, we have the dream sequence of Toaster. Toaster has a dream and he dreams first of the master and like his memory of the master. And then he dreams he's burning the toast. And then there's a clown firefighter who says, run. Who rises from hell. It's important. Rises from the fires of hell. Well, you know, fires anyway. And then there's water everywhere. And of course, the water turns into forks is afraid of water and forks, you know, because it's an electronic machine. Yes, it's an appliance. That's what this is really setting up is Toaster's fear of water. That's why this is in the movie. I mean, this is another thing that's like way too scary for kids. The clown (laughs) especially is a very scary drawing. Uh, And this is some of the most overt suicide imagery because the toaster is dangling above a bathtub. Well, yeah. So that's that. But it's basically because dropping your appliances in the bathtub is a known thing. People have done that break stuff too. not just toaster in the bathtub. But yes, but it's definitely both things. I think again, suicide is such a part of this movie. It's such a part of the book. It's such a part of the author's work that Mm -hmm. I can't believe that's an accident. But yeah, so this is one of the most like visually upsetting scenes in the movie. It is. And then finally, of course, Toaster wakes up and there's a storm. So it's raining. So there's water and Blanky blows away. I do want to say also super quick about the dream. Toaster falls in it, um, which is foreshadowing what will happen to Toaster at the end of the movie, where instead of being afraid of falling, they will jump because, hey, they're going to be the brave little Toaster by then. Right now, they're the scared little Toaster. (laughs) Anyway, yes, uh, Blanky's gone. The battery's gone dead. And Lampy, who now understands that other people matter and have feelings, (laughs) plugs himself into the battery, makes himself into a lightning rod and commits suicide as every character in this movie, almost every character uh, does. (laughs) Yes, because Lampy doesn't actually die. But Lampy's bulb breaks and you think could be dead. But the next day, they're all searching for the blankie. And Lampy's there, too, but, you know, looking much the worse for wear. Really damaged. And he remains damaged until they get to the uh, Elmo St. Peter's shop. So he's for a while. He looks really bad and damaged. Again, they're really like, even though he didn't die. Yeah. This left real, you know, scars. And and Uh this mattered. This is another really funny radio line, I think, where they're hearing Blanky and he says something like, I guess he's up in blanket heaven. He's a puffy little angel with an odd nose. (laughs) Because he does have an odd nose. It's a knob. But instead, he's up in a tree. And Kirby actually rescues Blanky from the tree. Then we go to a waterfall. So it's both water and falling. Toaster's biggest fears. 
And everyone else is serious too, because, and this is also taken from the book, the vacuum cleaner has a legit panic attack. It freaks out. This is played as a real panic attack. Like all the symptoms of a real panic attack, he starts self-harming, he's chewing on his cord, he has to be calmed down by someone else. Yep. Uh, Make even carpet sweeping motions, which is one of the quote-unquote four lines that is straight from the book. It's a funny one, though. But they they calm Kirby down and bring him back. This is a scene that is not necessarily too disturbing as a kid, but as an adult, when you realize what they're doing here, I find it to be one of the more disturbing scenes. Mm -hmm. To see a character in a Disney movie have like a true blue panic attack. And afterwards, when he's calmed down, he's angrier than ever. He says some of the meanest, worst stuff he says. And that demonstrates that his whole mean facade is a defense mechanism. Because what he's specifically reacting to is they're like, Kirby, you're okay. We love you. We're so happy you're fine. And he's like, you all saw me at a moment of weakness, and that's unacceptable. Right. So they're going to try to swing across the river with everybody in a cord chain (laughs) with toaster on the end. Toaster ends up on the other side of the river above the waterfall, but can't hang on because Toaster then has kind of a panic attack. Not 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 quite more of a it's not quite as extreme. No, but more of vertigo kind of can't hang on, gets dizzy. Yeah, it's not like a clinical diagnosis panic attack, but uh, she's he's very anxious and uh, drops the cord. More of a vertigo, I always feel yeah, like. Yeah, that's fair. And so they all fall into, and Kirby is the only one left up on the cliff because everything falls in the river. And he leaves for a long time. I mean, you presumably know, especially if you're an adult, that he's going to come back. But especially with how mean he's just been, like, he's gone for a while. And you're like, is he going to leave them? But then he does, he jumps heroically, which is also, this is his, you know, big symbolic self-sacrifice of jumping off of a cliff. Self-sacrifice, suicide, whatever. Probably more of a self-sacrifice. Still, still, again, this is the imagery that this movie is playing with. Right. And then Kirby ends up rescuing them. Rescues everyone. They end up in an evil swamp. They're totally off track. This is, they're really bad at this journey, which is what you were talking about up front. Because they are just appliances. Yeah. Life is rarely about truly triumphing over adversity, I think. I think it's mostly about hanging on in the face of adversity and doing what you can in the face of adversity. And that's what these characters are doing. Until the end, they don't have a big, incredible triumph. They just, they maintain, they get through it. They make it work. And that's what we all have to do sometimes in our darkest moments, in the dark moments shown in this movie. Like you just you have to keep going, even if you're totally lost and you're in a gross, stinky swamp. This is my favorite line in the whole movie, the one that I think about all the time. And I love sending to people in like GIF reactions or whatever, which is radio going. Things could be worse, you know, and Lampy goes, how, how, what, how could they be worse? They couldn't. I lied. (laughs) so much of the humor in this movie is gallows humor so then kirby uh, as they're pulling kirby along because they don't have the battery kirby ends up falling into some mud which starts sucking him down and you know he's all mad at them that they're all getting dragged in because they're all kind of attached together radio's the last one in the chain i have to call out the single most upsetting moment in the entire movie to me which is toaster begging blanky like Planky, 
untie yourself, like try to save yourself at all. And Blanky. Yeah. The, again, the horrifyingly good performance of one take Timmy just goes, I'm not scared. And then they sink into the muck together. And I'm like, oh, a child accepting his death. No. <laughs> ah! Yeah, that, that to me is the single most, you know, again, it's not as like visually scary as the clown, but that is the most upsetting moment to me is Blanky saying, I'm not scared. I can't every time I can't handle it, even though I know they're going to be rescued immediately. It's a, yes, <sighs> because radio starts playing music. It's like my final broadcast and such so playing some music. Which, what's the song? Mammy or My Mammy or something? Mammy, My Mammy. And radio, this is kind of radio's self-sacrifice. Obviously, he didn't intentionally imperil himself like Lampy and Kirby, but this is right. this is radio saving everyone. This is radio's big moment to do that. And because a man hears the radio and finds them and pulls them all out. And he has a huge truck with gigantic wheels. And a dog named Quadruped. Again, this movie's very good at balancing... We've just had one of the darkest scenes in the movie. We're about to have another of the darkest scenes in the movie. This guy's got to be a little silly in between. He is they extremely gotta, silly. I just can't just be despair throughout because then it's like Fox and the Hound and it's boring and you hate it. Do they ever say his name or you it, you can see his name anywhere in the movie? Because everything I was seeing is going on about, oh, this name is Elmo uh, St. Peter's. And I'm like, when do you ever see his name? You can see it in the movie. And also he is referred to as Mr. St. Peter's uh, at one point by the Peter Laurie lamp. Mm -hmm. Uh, He talks about Mr. St. Peter's is, you know, he's a technician or whatever. That was one of those things that I never caught and was just like, he's he's the guy, (laughs) the repair guy. But the fact that he is St. Peter, that is very intentional. Again, it's the religious imagery of this movie Uh, Except he's not welcoming you to heaven. He's pretty much welcoming you even deeper into hell. Again, there's so much hell imagery in this movie. Like it is, it's about God. It's about your relationship with God and what we have to do in a world where we believe, like the master turns out to, God still loves us, but, you know, we don't hear from him. Um, And how how can you believe in a world that seems so hellish and, and all this stuff? But yeah, Elmo St. Peter's. This guy and his dog is quadruped, which is a reference to the fact that a dog is a quadruped. So it's all very symbolic and meaningful and deep and meaningful. Mm -hmm. And then a a character gets its heart ripped out. Yep. So the he's a uh, you know, it's a it's a parts store, appliance parts store. So a customer comes in, asks for a blender motor. He doesn't actually have just parts in his back room. He has old appliances that he cannibalizes for parts. So he tears the blender apart with his creepy, evil, uh, silly laugh, not evil, but creepy, silly laugh. And everybody's like, (gasps) and so he takes the blender motor and puts it in a box and sells it to the customer. And everybody's like, "Ah." this next song, the B movie show song. That's my favorite song in the movie. That's my favorite part. Before we get to the B movie song, which is great, I want to talk about two things about Elmo St. Peter's. Number one, with this whole like theory of God and these humans are, you know, godlike beings to the appliances, which they are. I mean, they created them like it's pretty one to one. It's interesting because Elmo St. Peter's isn't doing anything wrong. Like if you think about what's literally happening, he collects old appliances, he removes the parts, he sells functional parts. Yep. 
He recycles. Yeah, he's he's a little deceptive in that he's talking about like, oh, I have a whole shipment of blender motors and you got the last one. And he only has a single motor as far as we can tell. But, you know, he's really not doing anything wrong. But from the perspective of, you know, it's it's the unknowability of, of divine beings and like you can't really understand and all this stuff we were talking about. But on a funnier note, one of my favorite things in this whole movie is the wacky customer, <laughs> the only customer we see at Elmo St. Peter's shop, who is this ridiculous drawing of a doofus who has this goofy voice and everything he says is so deadpan and funny. So when he hears that he has a blender motor that he's picking up for the misses, he goes, oh boy, heaven sent you to me. Which <laughs> just, <laughs> in addition to the religious imagery, it's just so funny for him to, <laughs> to be like, oh, heaven a blender motor. And later, just to get ahead of it, later on, he'll he'll talk about, um, he says something like, the missus loved the blender motor, was right. wondering if you had any of those radio, t-. like this was his anniversary present to his wife and she loved the blender motor. It's so, <laughs> it's, it's in the background. On a first watch, you probably won't even hear it, but it's so funny in this otherwise dark moment. Okay, B-movie, great song. Very scary. This is probably, as a kid, the part that scared me the most, even though the song, because the sound mixing is bad, it was totally incomprehensible. Right. But this song is at least the most fun, I think. Yeah, when you're not scared by the imagery of it, and if you ignore I don't feel like the song is as scary. Like, the scene before where he's taking the blender apart, which... The way that's played is definitely horror and creepy. But this, when they get to the song part, that makes it feel like it's just silly scary. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I never thought this song was actually scary. That makes sense from the perspective now, mostly. But again, as a kid, but even even as a kid, as a kid, I truly found this scary. Mm-hmm. The colors, the wicked high angles, so everything seems so big and tall, and it, you know the shelves are towering above you. This, by the way, a lot of the stuff with Elmo St. Peter's obviously got repurposed for Sid. I don't know. I thought the voices were scary. I obviously didn't know who Peter Lorre was yeah. or the weird Joan Rivers impersonation that happens halfway through this. Like, But I just thought those were like weird voices on creepy looking characters. And of course, the one part of this that is, I think, pretty upsetting is the part I sang at the beginning where the our heroes are singing and they go, there goes the sun. Right. Here comes the night. Somebody turn on the light because that's a motif of this movie. Mm -hmm. Somebody tell me that fate has been kind. Like they are truly throughout this sequence terrified for their lives and they're begging someone tell me fate has been kind and all the other appliances are like, nope, not (laughs) at all. It's like a B movie. You're going to get, you know, slaughtered like a horror movie. It's right. I get what you're saying. And I do love the song. And I think this is a wonderful choice for your favorite part. Mm -hmm. But there is still there is no scene in this movie that has no darkness in it, except maybe the end. (laughs) And then, of course, uh, at the end of the song, that's when the uh, customer comes back asking if there are any radio tubes. So, of course, Elmo St. Peter's comes back to cannibalize the radio. And Lampy has a good idea. And Lampy has a good idea to scare the man. So they they all make a 
I don't know what you want to call it. They're basically toaster. It's on top of the vacuum cleaner with the blanket around him. And so that when the man looks at the toaster, he sees his reflection. Ding, ding, ding. Yes. And basically thinks it's like a ghost or something that he's seeing and he freaks out. There's all kinds of wacky things happen and he ends up fainting. And again, this is the Sid thing of what can we do to get out of this situation of this guy who's killing toys? We actually have to show ourselves alive. I don't think that he realizes what he's seeing his appliances, but yeah, kind of a similar situation, but not the, you know, climax of the movie. So he faints and all the appliances escape, even the other ones, not just our heroes or whatever you want to call them. Yes, and the dog escapes too. And I like that it's Lampy's idea, both because I think it's a really sweet moment when he's celebrating the fact that his idea worked for the first time. But also because, you know, Toaster and Blanky have the closest relationship to each other. And it feels like Lampy and Radio have the closest relationship to each other. They're kind of the buddies, you know. It's like, oh, one's a loudmouth and one's kind of stupid. And, you know, and Kirby's just like the angry grandpa who loves everyone, but he's a curmudgeon. Yep. But so I I like that it's, you know, specifically like his best friend radio being imperiled uh, that that activates Lampy. It's it's good stuff. And and quadruped, the dog also runs and drives the car away. So what's he doing to the dog? I don't I don't know. Well, I was never sure if the dog was running away from his master or that could just be from the appliances. Like I'm getting out while the that's how I always interpreted it. But. I don't know why the car is the dog is able to drive the truck, but, you know, because it's funny as again, like if you have a super dark scene or sequence of scenes, you got to undercut it with something much sillier. And we do get one last thing from the customer, Zeke, you know, where he's like he sees all of this, by the way, they all run past him. Right. He is now aware that appliances are alive and his only reaction is to. Lean over to Elmo St. Peter's, who's waking up from being knocked unconscious and go, did I catch you at a bad time? Just wondering if you got my radio tubes. So, yeah, they are heroes or whatever. They have escaped in a, a baby carriage, so they have something to ride in again as they approach the city. And they even show like they're going downhill and that's how they're able to go fast without a battery because this movie does think through those things. And I think when it, you know, does things like, oh, sometimes the cords aren't visible and sometimes they're not plugged in. Like, I think those are deliberate choices, but I think they do think through it. Yep. And we see the city, which has like these stars around it and, you know, looks idyllic and we get a big sweeping instrumental version of City of Light. And it's like, ah, maybe we've made it. (laughs) And then once they get to the city, and I know I'm jumping ahead over something that we'll come back to, but once they get to the city, it's very grimy. It's brown. It's, you know, it's a big city. And again, I think that's deliberately showing like, oh, this is their idealized version. But reality is never as good as you think it will be. Everything's bad all the time. Brave little toaster is like a movie. (laughs) Okay, now tell us what happens in between. So in between, we actually get a moment away from our friend appliances. We pan across pictures of the master on the shelf that starts with the one we're familiar with. And then we see he's getting older and older. And then he's got a cap and gown on. He's packing for college. 
So obviously quite a bit of time has passed since he visited the cottage, which I'm like, why do you own a summer cottage and then not visit it for 10 years? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Their family's rich. Their family's stupid rich. They are stupid rich, but still. It's these weird little things that bug me after the fact. I gotta be honest, I've known enough people in, in real life, enough families for whom this was like true that they would be like yeah we have this weird piece of property we used to go to but we just kind of let it fall into disrepair it's to me this is not outside the realm of of reality but yes again it, rob the master is actually a little bit of a character in this and he's just kind of a lame doofus he is which i like that idea again of like the unknowability of god like what if god from the view of gods it, i'm not saying this is true you know or what i believe but it's an in intriguing idea to me if like what if god in the realm of gods is a lame doofus <laughs> um and i and so when this movie came out very important when this movie premiered on the disney channel it it sparked a little bit of controversy not because it was a movie marketed to kids that has a ton of suicide not because of the later scene where you see a topless woman not because of the darkness and scariness and a million kids being traumatized by the clown and the air conditioner. But because Rob, who is a white man, is dating Chris, who is coded as a Latina woman, uh, who has darker skin, yes, literally this is true, the only backlash that happened to the Brave Little Toaster is that it shows an interracial relationship. Sigh. That is awful. It's... So not even important to the story either. It's just it's not it's not even explicit that it's his girlfriend. I mean, it is his girlfriend. They but it's a, it's a dumb reason to get upset about this movie. That's for sure. It's it's a racist, offensive, awful reason to get upset about this movie. But we do have our first and only mom status of this movie. She's overprotective. She's really overbearing. <laughs> she is also, you know, kind of a worrywart. And basically <laughs> she bought him two, a million pairs of underpants and a million pairs of socks. So the girlfriend, Chris, comes by. She's got a car and Rob doesn't. So she's coming by to pick him up, to take him to the old summer cottage so he can get the things he wants to take with him to co college. But and the mom is like, oh, why bother with those old things? Just take my stuff. And he's like, mom, I'm not going to take your stuff. What will you use? She's like, take my, this lamp. This is later, but it's fine. We can talk about it now while we're doing the mom status. But yes, later on, she'll be like, take my lamp. And he's like, what will you do? And she's like, I'll go out. I won't read. I'll sit in the dark. Yeah, she's just like, I'll be fine. I'll sit in the dark. I won't read. I'll go out like. Just take all my stuff. It's so weird. She's never seen, by the way. Mom status also off screen. <laughs> yeah, because they could not afford to animate another human. You get two. It's totally fine. You get two humans. That's it. No, I'm sorry. You technically get four. Well, Zeke. <laughs> you get three humans and whatever human. Zeke is. It's like a cardboard cutout. <laughs> You're making the Zeke face. It's very funny. <laughs> I can't make the Zeke face properly, though, because none of his teeth connect. Secret side plot of this movie is that Zeke is a space alien attempting to imitate human behavior. <laughs> Secret, it's in there if you if you look at the deep lore. Yeah. So they're they're headed off to the cabin and then we get back to the appliances. Now we're in the city. I love these dirty, grimy, creepy city backgrounds. Uh, they 
look up uh, the master in the phone book. A nice street lamp helps them out. Apparently they uh, they know his last name, which, you know, we don't. <laughs> yeah, it's said in the second movie, but it doesn't matter. Uh, but they, I, I think it's funny that they're able to find him in the phone book because apparently they actually know his name, even though they just call him the master always. And also because of the level of detail in this movie, if you pause on the phone book in the one super quick shot you get of it, there's a hundred thousand jokes. Mm-hmm. There's like one of the names is Taipei, Taiwan, which is where they did you know, the, most of the animation for this. And then there's Hollywood, California, which is where they did the rest of it. And there's all these different places. There's in-jokes, uh, yellow blankie, vacuum gruff, Bambi deer, flying elephant, white snow, pan Peter, puppet wooden. Some inside jokes that I don't even know what they're in reference to. I assume they were funny to the people working on the production. There's just I'm sure they were. Whole bunch of stuff uh, just because every frame of this is is packed with detail. In this case, it's silly Easter egg detail. Speaking of silly Easter egg detail, the first ever appearance of the A113. The apartment number that is Rob's apartment is A113. Which was the famous room where CalArts animation was taught I believe it is still taught there. Right. And it's where all the Pixar guys uh, of whom, again, Jerry Reese like was close to. uh, And of course, Joe Ramft was one of. But it's where they all got their start. And so they put it into all the Pixar movies. But this is the first appearance of it ever. Uh, And it was Jerry Reese takes credit for it. He says this was his idea because he wanted to shout out all his Pixar buddies. So they get to the door. Radio says, I'll use the appliance code knock so that the other appliances will let them in and they don't have to just wait outside. And as they go in, we switch back and see the master arriving at the cabin. He's explaining how this was their summer home and they used to go here and they stopped. But uh, the cabin, and this is intercut, you know, with the following scene, but uh, they see what's happened with the cabin. They see all the ridiculous stuff that was left out from Lampy's bad ideas. And they see that the our heroes, those appliances are missing. And so he assumes that the cabin has been broken into and robbed. So the new appliances are all jealous and upset about the cottage ones because they apparently are also in love with the master <laughs> and not their actual owner, the mom. <laughs> He's the best, apparently. Right, because these are, you know, you're going to laugh at me, I'm sure. But like, you know, these are these are the people who see themselves as godly, who want to have a connection with God, but are huge jerks <laughs> and don't get it. Even if they understand logically how it needs to work, they don't. They aren't good people. They are not. Um, and obviously, the, you know, there's like there's the two faced sewing machine is the big joke because it has two faces and it's two faced. So then we get the song. The Cutting Edge? Isn't what it's called? Yeah, Cutting Edge. It's called The Cutting Edge. I want to say first, I feel so much relief in this scene, especially when they get to TV. It just feels to me like when you've done a super long road trip (laughs) and you finally get to where you are and like you're tired and everything has a weird energy and you're not really having fun yet, but you're there, you're done, you're reuniting with your old friend. But yes, The Cutting Edge, uh, the least comprehensible song you know, outside of the remastered version. Exactly. But it's all of these cutting edge appliances talking about uh, how new they are and And how great they are. A lot of people read this as, and I think it's fair to read it as, I think it's part of what they're playing with as, you know, talking about consumerism and this idea of like, you always got to have newer and bigger and better things and all this stuff uh, and, and kind of, you know, 
taking that down, which I think is definitely part of it. But Jerry Reese talks about it mostly being a it's it's to make the characters feel like they're obsolescent. And he talks about connecting to this emotion of like feeling like you're outdated. And again, this is the question at this time is, is feature animation going to continue to exist Mm -hmm. or is it totally done for? This is the question going through all the Disney animators heads. Musker and Clements talk about it with great mouse detective. Everyone working on the brave little toaster is talking about it. So it's, that's really what he's tapping into. And so the payoff of this is later in the beginning of the junkyard when all of our heroes are talking about, you know, it's so nice that the master has such new appliances because right. it's about making our heroes feel, dare I say it, worthless. But it's also this kind of anti-consumerist thing. I have to say, there's a bit in here where they're talking about why would you go on vacation when you could just stay at home and, you know, like watch it on the TV and use that as your vacation and not experience real things. Because we want to get out of the house. It's a freaking pandemic. <laughs> this is what I was going to say. Even though it's not intentional, I was like, I have never connected more to the idea that virtual experiences suck <laughs> and are not as good as the real thing. Oh my word. What a true nightmare. Right. Zoom, this is the Zoom should be singing this song. Everything you wanted and less. As they're finishing up the song, they're tossing each of the appliances out the window into a dumpster. And it's intercut with the master going, where's the toaster? Where's the blanket? You know, like every time he says in the cottage, where's the whatever? You see them all falling into the dumpster. And he's 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 very unhappy about it. And these bad appliances never really suffer consequences. They don't face the punishment they would in other Disney movies because bad people uh, sometimes don't face punishments, really. I mean, they don't get to go to college, but they don't get you know, to go to college. There's no there's no real punishment beyond that. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, Master fixes the air conditioning. Unit. He does. Oh, and as the dumpster is getting driven away, the TV sees that it's an Ernie's disposal garbage truck. That's an important tip for later. But the master fixes the air conditioner, who is like, what? And I get to get touched by the master. And who actually wells up with joy, which yeah. this is one thing that I really appreciate. None of our hero appliances are ever shown with tears in this movie because, like, what is a toaster crying out of? Here, the <laughs> AC is crying because it's, like, cold buildup. I appreciate that commitment to reality mainly because I just watched the sequels, which we're obviously going to talk about, and there's all sorts of bodily functions happening with appliances in those movies. They're crying all the time, and it, again, just these little touches of, like, This movie is so subtle and so specific and so like they really thought through it. And man, it could have been bad. Yeah. Just these tiny, tiny details that make this movie good. Anyway, now we're in the junkyard. Yep. There's an evil magnet and other than the refrigerator at the beginning. But this is one of the the big crusher here kind of has a face, but is never shown talking, is never shown doing anything but its job because it is the cold, unfeeling face of death. Yep. And it's hard for me to pick a favorite part of this movie because there's something I like about pretty much every scene. City of Light is, I guess, by default, my least favorite, but I am going to pick the worthless musical number because that is always what I think of when I think of this movie. Mm -hmm. It is the ultimate realization of this movie's themes 
and the kind of despair and sadness in this movie, because what this musical number is, is it's like all the other musical numbers. It's several characters singing like one verse. Right. And in this case, it's several cars singing and each of them sings about what happened in their life. Then they are crushed to death mm-hmm. and everyone sings worthless. And the whole point of this is this idea that, you know, it's nihilism. It's life is meaningless. No matter what you did in life, you will die Mm -hmm. and all of your accomplishments and achievements will be forgotten. And the lyrics of this song are very important. You know, some of the characters are like sad and they're almost kind of happy for death Mm -hmm. just to go in order. So there's a blue sedan who talks about like, he can't take this pressure anymore. He's tired. He's ready to go. There's a pink convertible who is so old. She can't get started anymore. There's a red sports car who like lived fast, dies young, There's an old race car who was famous and, well, turns out fame is meaningless, too. There's a limousine reflecting on love. There's a hearse that has one of the darkest lines. I took a man to a graveyard. I beg your pardon. It's quite hard enough just living with the stuff I have learned. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's seen some stuff. Uh, There's a beach station wagon who makes a not kid appropriate joke, but fortunately the sound mixing is so bad you can't figure it out, I guess. Mm -hmm. And the final one is this green pickup who is drawn a little bit like a Native American character, was on a reservation, and who was like spurned and was told that he's worthless. And so unlike all the other characters who are picked up by the magnet and crushed and unable to resist, he truly commits suicide because he drives into the crusher Without interacting with the magnet, he wants to die. It is incredibly dark. Again, it's incredibly nihilistic. Mm -hmm. I think the movie does not agree with this song because of where it ends. I don't. If I thought it did, then I wouldn't like it. But But this song is definitely one of the ones that is easiest to remember because it's the last song with words in the movie. Right. And it these, this is the depths of despair. And this is the image that always stuck with me. It's the thing that Isaiah and I talked about that got me to watch this movie again, trying to remember, like, is this as dark as I remember it being? Yes. Because all the cars chanting worthless and life is worthless and you're going to, which, you know, obviously you are going to die. And honestly, again, talk about like this movie hits me. This is something I struggle with a lot is like. I'm going to be forgotten eventually. And everything that I like is going to be forgotten. Every movie I love Mm -hmm. will probably be forgotten. Movies as an existence will probably be forgotten. Like on a long enough timeline, everything is forgotten. And so it's easy to fall into the trap of feeling like everything you do is worthless. Everything you do is pointless because, you know, it eventually will stop leaving a mark on a world. Of course, you can't think this way. No. And it's absolutely wrong to think this way. And that is why this movie makes me feel better. Because when I am feeling that way, this movie goes, I understand why you feel that way. But remember, that is not how it is. Because you can always make a difference for the people around you. Exactly. It doesn't matter if you make a difference, you know, centuries down the road. Absolutely. And that is why this movie is able to lift me out of the dumps um and meanwhile this is intercut because it has to be with some slightly funnier stuff which is the tv desperately trying to convince uh, rob and chris to go to the junkyard and pick up their old appliances yeah so this is where we have the scene where rob is like 
well, now what am I going to do? And the mom is like, take my stuff. And he's like, no, I'll just go find a thrift store or something to pick up some other old stuff, because apparently he loves old things best. And yeah, he's again, he's he's a weirdo, like junk collector. He's a super weirdo. <laughs> yeah, he's a super weird dude. By the way, while we're at it again, talking about Toy Story, Andy is a weird freak. Andy is a creep. Andy is obsessed with his toys up until he's going to college. He's a weirdo, too. But <laughs> both of them, you just got to buy it for the movies to work. Anyway, and the TV stuff is pretty funny, especially at the end. The TV stuff is pretty funny because the TV keeps getting crazier and crazier, being like, you want old stuff? You know, go to Ernie's Disposal, Ernie's Circus of Values, uh, eventually, you know. And they're like, what if we go to this other place? And he's like, "Uh, the other place had a huge roach infestation. He just keeps uh, making the commercial crazier and crazier until finally it's Crazy Ernie's the amazing Emporium of, of Total, total bargain, bargain Madness. Yes. And finally, then the the scene of Rob going, you ever heard of this place? Sounds cool or whatever. Because it's exactly the kind of place you would love. And then they go there yes. after the song is over. And I love him going, this doesn't look like Crazy Ernie's amazing Emporium of Total Bargain Madness. Like the Because TV it literally was- just says, Ernie's disposal. <laughs> like the TV was just just made something up and Rob internalized it immediately. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it, it finally worked. So the other thing about this song, besides the thematic intent, besides how funny the TV stuff is, I just really like this song. I listen to it a lot. It's like this really cool rock mm. song. It has a great saxophone solo in it. Like this is. Yeah. This really is the peak of the music in this movie. And I almost did it for the podcast song, but I thought it would be. <laughs> Funnier to do B-movie and I don't know this. Yeah. Yeah. But obviously you could do podcasts. It is funny, though, also how the girlfriend Chris says he should have gone for the new stuff. Yeah, because <laughs> she's not a weird freak. Yeah. I mean, she is a little bit. Wait till they get in the junkyard where she's like, man, look at this cool old car stuff. She's a car buff. Yeah. I mean, we're basically there already. But I do. It's true. I do like that because it shows you. Like, you know, oh, how they connect and how they have some shared interests. And she doesn't really matter enough. They don't have to do that much character work, but it's just how much they care. They're like, even Chris is going, we're going to we're going to give her a little bit of interest. I mean, heck, for a Disney movie, what? She's one of the strongest female characters (laughs) just by the depressing standards. But um, right, right. And the appliances have pretty much assigned themselves or resigned themselves to death rather even with radio saying well at least we'll all go together until they see the master and then they realize they can't give up their lives aren't over yet don't yes don't the commit master suicide. is here and because even though the magnet has finally caught them they are start jumping off the conveyor belt every time and then trying to plant themselves in a place where the master will see them they have several near misses and, you know, every time the magnet comes along and grabs them and puts them back on the conveyor belt and they jump off again. And finally, though, the master sees the photo of himself that Blanky dropped and is like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> That's super weird. And then he does finally see several of the appliances, but the magnet was still chasing them. And so just as he grabs, which one does he grab the lamp or the vacuum? I forget. Anyway, he tries to grab one of them and the magnet grabs them. Also, he's trapped. He he grabs them all. I believe he 
takes all of them except the toaster and then they all get grabbed. He's it's the vacuum that's like crushing him so he can't get up. No, I think it's actually some other random piece. Oh, you're right. You're right. It's actually an axle. So eventually he puts the magnet, drops them on with a whole bunch of other trash so they can't just jump off again. And then, of course, Rob is trapped on the conveyor belt, too, and he's screaming for Chris to help him. And And he's going to be crushed to death. He's going to be pulped. But again, this is this is the scene that makes the whole movie good. This is something Jerry Reese added. This was one of the first changes he made was he was like, we need to change the ending. Toaster has the reflection of the gears of the machinery. This is the last time we see Toaster being reflective and Toaster realizes you know, maybe we are all going to die. Maybe what we do won't matter much in the long term. But right now, I can save the master the people who are most important to me and the master. And even if maybe God did abandon us because we don't know yet, you know, that he tried to save us or whatever. But it's still worth believing in all this stuff anyway. There are things in this world that matter that are worth giving yourself for. And so this is Toaster's self-sacrifice which is very visceral when he's getting crunched in the gears and he yep. leaps and he stops the machinery and he saves a day. And you can tell how scared he is of the jump. You remember he has that vertigo. He looks terrified. But in this moment, he is brave, not because he's innately brave, but because he has learned that there are things that can are stronger than fear. And it's perfect. It's it's such a transcendent meaningful moment then there is a happy ending which i think is important because (laughs) of all the horror we've gone through which is just like the air conditioner rob who is weirdly obsessed with this lousy old toaster but don't worry about it yep rob fixes the toaster and they all get to go to college in chris's car and then it's the end there's a lot of nice final character interactions between them but it ends with kirby Finally going, eh, you're all a bunch of junk. (laughs) He doesn't really mean it. And they all laugh. And we have this gorgeous fake crane shot where the car's getting smaller and smaller. And you hear Lampy say what was apparently an improvised line, which is he goes, I'm aching from joy. (laughs) Then maybe my favorite piece of instrumental music is the credit song just called end title on the soundtrack and it's this long piece of music that's like do 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 and it's triumphant and you feel good because you've been through an adventure <laughs> chef's kiss all right we've been recording for two and a half hours this is our longest record since jungle book but if you think we're done we're not even close to done it's time for some sequel spin-offs remakes rides and reboots do you have anything you want to cover? I actually did have something that I didn't think you would have. This is not exactly, it's definitely not a sequel and it's not exactly a spinoff or a remake, but this movie it was not the only movie similar to this story to this that came out at this time. There was a 1986 television movie called The Christmas Toy produced by the Jim Henson Company. Did you ever see that? I'm vaguely aware of it. But I don't believe I've seen it. This is another one where toys can come alive when the children aren't playing with them. But this one, and of course, because it's Jim Henson, all of the toys are puppets. So it's a live action little Christmas television movie. And uh, they're all fun little, you know, puppets and things. And 
The twist in this one is that if they are seen out of their place where they were left, they are frozen forever. So they not only have to not move when something can see them, they also can't be a place which is not the place where they were left. They have to get back to the place where they were left. So it's an it's an interesting little story. I can't say it's, you know, best ever, but it's a fun little story. And the fact that it came out the year before this movie, I think is very interesting. In terms of official sequel spinoffs, etc., the Disney parks, they're just kidding. As mentioned, Disney hates this movie. You don't even get a pin. So let me get the like thing I barely even want to talk about out of the way. This was Hyperion's most successful movie. It turned into their most successful franchise, which again, this movie did super poorly. So that tells you how bad things went for Hyperion. Second place is Rover Dangerfield. Oh, boy. But so they were talking about or some other company was talking, but it was definitely in production at one point to do a Delarm of this movie oh, where no. all the characters would have been CGI. And there was such backlash to that that they actually shut it down. <laughs> I guess maybe it went a bit Delarm because it wasn't technically Disney doing this, but they were going to do a live action remake of that type. Oh, it would have been so terrible. Yeah, it would have been totally terrible. Of course, the joke everyone's making at the time is that literally that's what the cutting edge song is making fun of, is this idea of constantly trying to improve things that already worked. So we got to talk about the sequels to this because they are literally... A big part of the reason I wanted to, when we were planning this show, I wanted to do sequel spinoffs, remakes, rides, and reboots. It started in part because I knew we were going to do the Brave Little Toaster episode. I've been looking forward to it so much. And the two sequels to the Brave Little Toaster must be talked about in detail because they are two of the most deranged films that have ever existed, in my opinion. Obviously, making a sequel to The Brave Little Toaster is impossible. This movie itself is basically impossible, but how on earth do you make a sequel? There's not enough plot here to be like, oh, what happens next? Nothing. The characters have learned the lessons they're supposed to learn. And, you know, it's all just metaphoricals. So there's nothing else to do. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, Hyperion did release through Disney as a Disney subsidiary at this point, two sequels, which are on Disney Plus and which have been released on streaming. They're direct to video. They are direct to video. And uh, they are more of Disney films. And this is confusing. The second one in the terms of the chronological story is to the rescue. That one picks up the brave little toaster to the rescue, which picks up in college. Yep. And you know, is the direct sequel to this movie and introduces many characters who show up again in the third chronological movie. The brave little toaster goes to Mars, but then right. for reasons I've never had adequately explained, they released them out of order because they basically made these at the same time. And then and goes to Mars was released first, which it's incomprehensible. If you haven't seen the second movie. Yeah, it's really weird because I have seen so many different like some things will say they were released in the correct order. Some things will say they weren't. I have no idea if it was just that they were released in different orders in different places or if this is the release order, like when they showed them on the Disney Channel or something. I have seen this, too, because this movie is not. And, and this whole series is not very well archived online because it's not popular enough. Yep. But I assure you, in the more in-depth research I have done over years, because I'm obsessed with the Brave Little Toaster, they were released out of order, which is so strange. And people get confused because they're like, no, they didn't do that. Why would they have done that? Clearly, they're... But no, 
they were released out of order. Why? I have no idea. My suspicion is that they could tell Goes to Mars was kind of the better movie and the more interesting movie. And so they're like, release this first. It'll have a better shot at success. But uh, I'm going to go through them in story order. Which makes more sense. So Brave Little Toaster uh, to the rescue. Uh, And both of these movies were directed by the same guy. They got basically the cast members who were not big successes back. So Thorough Ravenscroft comes back for both. Lampy comes back for both. Uh, Deanna Oliver comes back for both. Obviously, one take Timmy had grown up, so they used some other actor who's awful. And uh, John Lovitz was like, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) So they used someone else for the radio who does a pretty good John Lovitz impersonation, I will say. Uh, I don't hate radio in these movies because of the performance. So to the rescue. First thing you'll notice is Chris is white. Yeesh. Uh, Yes. I showed you side by side pictures. They it's they don't just lighten her skin, but they change all her features to make her white. Yep. This one is much worse. This one is was really brutally painful to watch (laughs) in part because it is trying to still sort of be a. Obviously, it's trying to be a direct-to-video, like, silly sequel, like so many of the movies that we've covered in this awful section that I regret doing. But it's also still trying to be a Brave Little Toaster movie, so it's, like, kind of hinting at those themes and hinting at that darkness, but they can't do it well because it's not the same writer, director, songwriter, anything that made the first movie work. Animators, certainly. It's an even lower budget and just worse talent and totally outsourced without any oversight and all this stuff. Yep. And that's way worse. It's way worse than Goes to Mars, which is just silly fun. It has nothing to do with anything. But So we start off, uh, we're at college Rob is graduating early because, again, he's a dorky freak. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's studying to become a veterinarian. This is partially so they can bring in the original Brave Little Toaster book has a lot more stuff with animals. And so I think this is them kind of referencing that. But this is mostly an original story. And the lip sync is really bad. The animation's really bad. The voice direction almost never lines up with anything. And and there's like a cat and uh, with a bunch of kittens And there's Ratso, who's Rizzo the rat, if he wasn't funny or interesting (laughs) or good. There's a snake that doesn't do anything. And why is it in the movie named Murgatroyd? Probably just because they thought Murgatroyd's funny. There's a Mexican chihuahua that is a bad stereotype is pretty much what you imagine it is. Uh, And there's a monkey whose arm is wounded and who makes a big deal about the fact that he can't remember how he met the master. But maybe someday he will. And it's never delivered on. Um, The monkey's arm is broken and Kirby is a huge jerk to him about it because the monkey is like, I was mistreated by these people at Tartarus Labs. By the way, Tartarus means hell. Do you get it? We're definitely as smart as the first movie was. Definitely as smart. Uh, And Kirby just keeps going, I can't believe any person would ever be so cruel. And it's like, you lived through the first movie, dude. You remember. Right. This is the whole lesson you learned. Uh, And of course, they do the sequel thing of like, I guess they didn't learn a lesson. The blanket is super annoying. Radio's jokes are way slower rather than like 700 rapid fire jokes a second. It's just worse written. The plot really gets started when Rob is writing his 600 page thesis and he's almost done and he could turn it into graduate. But then he never hits save. (laughs) And then there's a computer virus that uh, doesn't work like a computer virus ever, but it eats his thesis. And everyone is going like you should have made a backup. And he's like, I know, I know. And the, his thesis is this huge tragedy. And it's like, you should have made a backup. They're absolutely right. 
this movie has too many ideas. It wants to be this movie about these animals, but it also wants to be a movie about computers. And the people writing it had didn't know anything about computers, which were still brand new at the time. Not brand new. It's the late 90s. That's true. But like there's still plenty of people who don't know about them. Yes. The writers of this movie knew absolutely nothing at all about computers, and they were not going to let that stop them from writing a movie about computers. Of course. So Kirby eats poop. That's super funny. And Chris vacuums up poop with him and it's very clear that he's eating it and he's disgusted by it. And Rob is upset. Why did you make the vacuum cleaner eat uh, kitty litter? And Chris is like, you love the vacuum cleaner more than me. And Rob's like, I do. And it's like, this is what we're doing with this movie. Wow. And so now his thesis is gone. He's not going to be able to graduate. Chris has has left him. White Chris has left him. <laughs> Meanwhile, his lab partner, Mac, who's repeating the sophomore year for like the hundredth time? Question mark. <laughs> he is going to deport the animals to Tartarus Labs. And you know this because the, he sits down at the computer and it asks him for his password. And his password is animal deportation. <laughs> <laughs> There's like 400 named characters in this movie. So our original characters get almost nothing to do. They get like four lines a piece, which is great. Deanna Oliver is the only actor who I feel like makes it through these things unscathed at all. She still has a lot of integrity. Anyway, then they go on the Internet. We have to explain the Internet because no one knows the Internet. So there is an original song performed by Aretha Franklin, who is a four legged computer with disc floppy disk drives representing her bosoms. <laughs> I hope that the new Aretha Franklin biopic that's out has 20 minutes about <laughs> her doing Brave Little Toaster to the rescue. This is obscene. There are a lot of actors involved in these movies that got no business. And Aretha Franklin <laughs> is the worst of all of them. Um, anyway, so this is the opposite of Cutting Edge, where, you know, the Cutting Edge song is all about like, oh, you shouldn't just be obsessed with new technology. But this movie's like, yes, you should. <laughs> They redo the Kirby dancing joke uh, from the Tutti Frutti, but this time they do it bad. The master absolutely should have made backups. Then another computer that's not related to the first computer gets a computer virus and explodes because of it, because that's what a computer virus does. Mm -hmm. The virus makes no sense whatsoever. The virus basically is mad. Computers in this are full on magic. And the virus is also represented by these green little Pac-Man ghosts. Then they go to the basement and they meet Wittgenstein, who is an original computer, like clearly an IBM <laughs> Watson type computer. Uh, and he is played by uh, Brian Doyle Murray, Got No Business. And he sings a song that's kind of good. The one really good idea they have here is the earlier Aretha Franklin song about the Internet has this chorus. It's like, we lead the way to the great unknown, never knowing what we'll find. But then when Wittgenstein is singing his song, there's a montage of him being shut down. And while that's happening, he's singing a very somber version of that, where he goes, I lead the way to the great unknown. <laughs> and it's kind of an effective moment. Anyway, this time, Radio has to basically kill himself to save the day because he has to give a radio tube to the uh, Wittgenstein, the computer that, of course, ran on radio tubes because that's what computers used to do. And as soon as it is replaced... One tube, one of its main broken tubes are replaced. All the other tubes magically heal themselves and the Ooh. virus ghosts are chased away. And now Wittgenstein, the old 
crappy computer that was basically just a big calculator in real life can do anything. It's able to magically open chain link fences remotely. It's able to drive cars remotely. It can do everything. Wow. Then there's an incredibly inappropriate joke I can't even describe on our show. I can't believe it's in this movie. Involving, let's say, plugging things into a computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, very disgusting. Uh, there's a big chase during which they play the same three second loop of terrible music over and over again until you're ready to die for sure. <laughs> Kristen Shaw has a voice in this for some reason. And we end with a trunk scene that's almost the same as the original trunk scene. Alrighty then. Brimble Toaster goes to Mars. They go to Mars <laughs> in this one. Even the title of that one, I was always like, no. Brave Little Toaster Goes to Mars, just nope. <laughs> so the two things I'll say about this movie. First of all, it is actually based on a the sequel that the original author wrote to his Brave Little Toaster book because he was a sci-fi author and his original story has more sci-fi. And it hews pretty close to the book, but you're right. It is a demented place to take this series. Uh-huh. What I like about it is that this movie stops trying to be good and stops trying to have anything to do with the first movie and is like, What if it's just a silly adventure in Mars? And for that reason, the tone is a lot less messy and it's certainly a bad film and it's a bizarre film. But like, I didn't hate myself watching it. To the Rescue is unbearable. It's it's just one of the worst written movies I've ever seen. So many scenes in that movie in To the Rescue are just characters explaining to other characters things they already know. It's the laziest exposition Ever. (laughs) Anyway, in Goes to Mars. So Goes to Mars, all of these movies start with a non-original song because, well, the first movie did it with Tutti Frutti, so we all got to do it. There's a microwave played by Wayne Knight. There's Farrah Fawcett. Can you guess what she's playing? It's super funny. Is she a faucet? She's a faucet. Isn't that funny? Faucet isn't exactly an appliance. It's not really. The master and Chris, who got married at the end of the last movie. I thought you said they broke up. Oh, yeah, they got back together because (laughs) Because they actually don't really explain it. She just forgives him (laughs) because that's how women Anyway, so there's a there's, they have a baby now who they call the new masterling, <laughs> which is really sweaty. Blanky hates the baby at first. He has that kind of <laughs> uh, lady in the tramp separation anxiety, but that lasts less than one scene. And then he decides he loves to comfort the baby. Yep. They make prime directive jokes because do you get it? We're going to Mars in this one. And there's a hearing aid. The hearing aid is played by Fivush Finkel, who wasn't in a lot of movies, but was a legendary star of Yiddish theater. He, like everyone else, got no business. <laughs> uh, and his best friend is a calculator played by Stephen Tobolowsky, got no business. Anyway. The Yiddish, you know, incredibly thick Yiddish accent hearing aid uh, is communicating with space and wants to get abducted and taken to Mars. <laughs> um, but instead, the little masterling, the baby gets taken to Mars instead. Also, there's a baby monitor that definitely scared me very much when I was a kid. He makes a loud, <laughs> scary baby monitor noise and has red bloodshot eyes. Wow. Also, they let the baby play with the the rat from the previous movie they've adopted because he was such a successful, funny character, and they just let the baby play with the rat. I see. And if the lady in the tramp has taught us anything, it's that that's a great idea. (laughs) Then they call up Wittgenstein, their magic computer friend, to be like, hey, can you get us to space? Can you get us to Mars? And Wittgenstein makes a very painful joke about like, of course I can get you to Mars. Now, Cancun on like the busy season, that would be a lot harder. But Mars is easy. And you're like, boy, I 
don't I wish that I had jumped into the gears of the crushing machine. Yeah. So here's what they need to go to Mars. It's very simple. Number one, you need a ceiling fan who is played by Carol Channing. Got no business. <laughs> you need a laundry basket. It's just a laundry basket. You need the microwave played by Wayne Knight, as mentioned. You need cheddar cheese flavored microwave popcorn specifically. And you need the Stephen Tobolowsky calculator. It's never explained how these things turn into a spaceship, but they do. It lets them travel, quote, double the speed of light. While they're also the Yiddish hearing aid who got the baby almost killed in the first place comes with them. And he explains that he used to be Albert Einstein's hearing aid. We haven't gotten to the weird part yet. There's a bit with balloons that's from the original book. It's kind of like a cheerful version of the worthless song, which is very hard to imagine. Yeah. They mostly use it to do a lot of hippie jokes and complain about how Woodstock 99 is was not as good as the original Woodstock. Yes, that is actually part of this song. They arrive on Mars. There's a whole bunch of satellites and uh, including Viking One, who is played by DeForest Kelly. <laughs> of course, Bones from the original Star Trek. Mm-hmm. By the way, this is the last movie to feature DeForest Kelly and the last movie to feature Thurl Ravenscroft and the last movie to feature Carol Channing. That's kind of a bad thing to go out on. Really profoundly depressing. Then they meet the Wonderlux appliances. The Wonderlux appliances were a bunch of appliances made by the Wonderlux company who had planned obsolescence built into them. Oh no. Imagine how <laughs> awful that would be for appliances to be like have a date when you're fated to die. So they all did what any appliances would do in this situation, which is they uh, taught themselves how to build a rocket ship and traveled to Mars. <laughs> uh, and now they've become military toasters. There's these toasters with rockets strapped to them. Alrighty then. The Wonderlux appliance has planned to nuke Earth as revenge on the humans who, uh, 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 you know, planned their obsolescence. And... The Supreme Commander of the Wonderlux Appliances is a like 400 foot tall refrigerator uh, (laughs) who's always yelling power to the appliances. And there's like some Nazi iconography, which is a little weird, Uh, but surely that won't become even weirder. (laughs) Um, And Toaster has to argue like, no, it's good for all appliances to have masters uh, from humans. And it's like, is Toaster pro slavery? (laughs) How could they prevent Earth from being nuked, Mom? I don't know. Toaster has to run for supreme commander (laughs) in a democratic election so now it's like politics yes the main thrust of this movie which admittedly they take like you know 40 minutes to get to is an election between the supreme commander and the brave little toaster yeah because the name like supreme commander totally sounds like you're gonna go along with a democratic election Correct. And of course he does. And uh, the toaster becomes Supreme Commander of Mars. And there's a line where Deanna Oliver has to say, wow, me, a little toaster, the Supreme Commander of Mars. <laughs> so then they are allowed to go inside the Supreme, the old Supreme Commander, who's the giant refrigerator. As mentioned, they travel across the frozen waste for a long, long. We did not have enough plot to make a 70 minute movie long time. <laughs> and they discover that the actual Supreme Commander is the brother of the hearing aid who when they were split up for reasons undescribed was kept when albert einstein traveled to america he took our friend the hearing aid but the supreme commander hearing aid he went to a nazi scientist yes straight up explicitly a nazi scientist and that's how he learned to build rockets and to nuke people did you think that the brave little toaster goes to mars would invoke the legacy of the holocaust (laughs) no it does 
Oh boy. Anyway, so they're going to leave, but the missile hasn't been deactivated. So uh, <laughs> somebody has to help the Nazi hearing aid get down there. He's the only one who knows how to deactivate it. Toaster will sacrifice himself uh, and is going to have to be trapped on Mars forever because they need the fuel. And it has to be organic because microwave popcorn is organic and they don't have enough popcorn to come back and save Toaster. But then the angel who's been wasting her time around here and who, by the way, is explicitly married to the Viking one played by DeForest Kelly. Okay. They have an unhappy, loveless marriage and they explicitly refer to it as such. Anyway, she's like, I'm organic. We can use me as fuel. My, like, petticoats is are real goose down, and my hair is real human hair. That's weird. Human hair doll. Human hair doll. Human hair doll. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, that happens. It's really scary. Uh, they go back. They rescue the toaster. There's a ton of ADR in this sequence for some reason. They get back home, and okay, Here's something. Here's me saying something nice about these movies. <laughs> they all have, again, they start with one non-original song and then they have four original songs. By and large, these are bad. Mm-hmm. The final song of this movie is called Home Again. It is just sung by Deanna Oliver. I think it is a beautiful song. Maybe I just yeah. have nostalgia for it. I sing it to myself a lot. I listen to it a lot. Whenever I come home from a long journey I, and I'm feeling a little bittersweet about it because it is a bittersweet song, I go... Home again, home again, safe and content. It's a really lovely song for a movie about Nazis and going to Mars and popcorn and stuff. So then they're celebrating Christmas. The angel, by the way, since she doesn't have her clothes or her hair, throws herself in the trash. (laughs) But uh, anyway, now we're at Christmas. This is a Christmas movie. And... uh, the little baby's about to say its first word, and they're like, will it be mommy? Will it be daddy? No, it's toaster! Of course it's toaster. Uh, it's very strange, and then there's a reprise of Home Again. That's the end of uh, Brave Little Toaster Goes to Mars, a stirring story about tribalism and the Holocaust that's mostly a, <laughs> a political thriller, and then DeForest Kelly died after doing that. These sequels are truly deranged. These are... <laughs> How do these movies exist? Why do these movies exist? Who wanted a sequel to this original movie? Who wanted this to be the sequel to the original movie? How did you get Carol Channing and Aretha Franklin to agree to this? Did you trick them? Did you record them without their knowledge? Well, Mom, now that we're home again, home again, it's time to rate the film. Would you recommend The Brave Little Toaster? And would you show it to a child? I do not think I would show it to a little child. I wish I could remember when we showed it to you. I'm suspecting it's one that we didn't watch or let you guys watch very often. I don't think so. When you were really little, I would probably recommend it, but... It's not something I'm going to go out of my way to recommend, unlike you, it sounds like, since you have recommended it several times. Yes. It's not one I'm likely to go out of my way to watch either. There's never been a time where I'm like, you know, I feel like watching The Brave Little Toaster. 
that just doesn't happen to me. That's fair. I figured you would like this movie less. <laughs> I, I think this is one of the like least recommendations you've given. And I knew this would happen. I knew finally we'd get to a few movies where I would recommend it more strongly than you. Yeah. And of course, I recommend this movie. As I said, like part of the reason that I did this entire podcast <laughs> was as a backdoor roundabout way to recommend this movie. Not that I haven't loved doing the whole podcast and won't continue to love doing it. Uh, and I know I took over this episode and I shouted and I talked a lot. But really, I think I've made my case for this being a great, well-made movie with a lot of artistry behind it, even if said artistry doesn't connect with you. But here is the main thing. What this show is about is watching cartoons with your family. And we ask each other, like, what does this mean to you? Uh -huh. Maybe I'm reaching too far with some of my interpretations. Maybe I want to see more in this than I do. Maybe all art is subjective. Maybe this podcast will be yet another worthless endeavor before I get crushed by the big squishy thing. <laughs> Ultimately, the truth is, I love this movie. Nothing will make me not love this movie. And I know that you, as my mother who loves me, no matter how you feel about this movie, you can be glad that I have this movie in my life to comfort me, to make me laugh, to make me feel, you know, emotional catharsis. Yep. That's what it's all about. Sometimes you find a movie that just speaks to you profoundly and you fall in love with it and it doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks. And I love The Brave Little Toaster. I really do. And I, mm. the sequels aren't good, but I even find those fascinating and have nostalgia for them. <laughs> and you know what? And life, life isn't worthless. There are people who are worth living for and, and taking care of yourself for. And, you know, it's all good. It's all good. And this this movie is very special to me. I would never show it to a child, <laughs> not only because it's wildly inappropriate for children, but because when I was a kid, again, you let me watch it younger than I might let a child watch it. And I've mostly found it boring. I preferred the sequels that were hyperactive and cartoony and bad, really bad. But like, I didn't even think about it at the time. I was like, of course, the Brave Little Toaster goes to Mars. We all know the Brave Little Toaster goes to Mars. And I just, you know, I was such a sci-fi kid. I was like, oh, Mars is so cool. Yeah, I, I would not show this to a child because even if they are old enough for it, I don't think they'll... Enjoy it because this is a movie that like you really have to think about and you really have to analyze. It's not a movie of obvious pleasures at all. So that's my opinion. And that is our Brave Little Toaster episode. Uh, three hours of recording as promised. I don't know what Brad's going to do to it. Well, you know, at least it wasn't five. <laughs> OK, everything must come to an end, just like all those cars. So next week, we'll be back on our regular schedule, finishing up the Bronze Era with 1988's Oliver and Company. Mother of mine, what does this movie mean to you? Uh, this movie has street savoir faire, or at least according to all the many trailers I have seen for it. <laughs> I have seen this movie, but I have seen the trailer more. If you give a bigger recommendation to... Oliver and company than the Brave Little Toaster. I'm going to be sad. <laughs> Next week, you're like, I love it. The Cheech and Chong little rat dog thing really does it for me. <laughs> Oliver and company. Also a very strange movie and a movie I'm excited to talk about. But it's the end of the Bronze Era. End of the Bronze Woo! Era. I'm finally going to give the promised uh, Katzenberg Eisner backstory and, and the rant that literally I've had some of our listeners tell me they're waiting for. <laughs> so that'll be next week. So join us, please. And we'll ask, why should I worry? Until then, I'm me. I'm mom. And it all started with a mouse. <laughs> <laughs>